And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. Got it at 10. I see you're all mic'd up there. It's Monday. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Hagman and Hagman Report. Uh, oh, my goodness. We're coming to you live from our radio and television studios in beautiful northwest Pennsylvania. Got a lot to get into today, you know. Kaboom, right? Uh, it's not, uh, it's not funny. It's not something that, you know, we make light of. It's, um, obviously we, uh, we spent the weekend watching, talking with different law enforcement and government sources. And uh what we're seeing are the fruits of an immigration jihad, you know? The illegal influx, the influx of illegals into this country, as well as those who have uh, been brought in and nat- uh, naturalized. Uh, um, what we're seeing, this lack of assimilation, the inability of cultural assimilation taking place, we're seeing the fruits of that. And... uh you know, it's it's interesting how the Democratic National Socialists on one side, the progressive, liberal, Marxist, Leninist, um, communist mindset, the people under the pretext of some altruistic um, issues or, or under the pretense of being altruistic want to, of course, sell you, sell us on the idea that... Uh, it's good. Immigration is good. Diversity is good. Tolerance is good. Oh, we've got to, we, we've got to, um, bring in people and, and we've got to bring in Muslims and Muslims, you know, we, we all worship the same God and, and, and Muslims, you know, we, we can, we can all peacefully coexist and, and, uh, and, you know, open up your hearts and minds and souls and, and just bring everything in. Well, the problem with that, folks, we're bringing in people who not just disagree with us, but they 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 they're forcing us to see it their way or no way they want us to convert or die there is no tolerance on the islamic side and but more importantly and and this is kind of this this is really the the meat of the matter here more importantly is those people who are in this country the hundred thousands really more than far more than a hundred thousand over the last couple of years muslims into this country illegally and and ex- quite many many more illegally are pawns in the game by the globalists. They're, they're pawns. They're they're weaponized soldiers being brought into this country. Why? To create chaos. Exactly what what happened over the weekend. Mission accomplished. At least in that respect. See a one cell. And I'm not buying for a moment that uh, that this one that's uh, this one individual in New York. Did everything he did by himself without the oversight or without the obvious uh, uh, help, or or even at the very least without somebody knowing about it. Obviously, that that's not right. You can't tell me that this man did not have help or others didn't know. I've been following this ever since ever since this happened. I've been following it, and I've I've, I've about three hours of sleep. So, bear with me. Go on. There's a lot of um, odd things about this 
these latest incidents um, that can't really put my finger on. One of them being, you had what three bombs, different bomb sites. There were a total of like eight bombs found, five in one area of Elizabeth, New Jersey, uh, another part of Elizabeth, New Jersey, and then the one in Chelsea, New York. And if I understand right, there was another un. Uh, Detonated device in New York City as well. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there's, so why yeah. a dumpster of all places? If you're going to well, put a bomb somewhere, yeah, and, and and that was one of the questions that you know is why the dumpster? Why underneath the dumpster? Why in a garbage can? Why not for maximum exp- uh, exposure or at maximum effect? Well, uh, you know, that, that's a that's a great question, and I'm not sure we've got the answers to that. And that was one of the questions I asked the law enforcement source I was speaking to uh, Saturday night. Why that? why that area and why that uh, means because it certainly uh, didn't work the way I, I think it was intended and and that's still under under review there was some discussion Saturday night about that being perhaps a, uh, a diversion or uh, to, to, to focus the efforts of the federal agencies and investigators on, on what was you know what they wanted to focus on. Well, meanwhile, another another cell, another group of people, were going to do something else. Now that, that could very well be, and that could still be a fluid situation. Well, one we thing with, with this uh, bomber is that he had uh, problems with the local Elizabethtown Police Department and right. government, and right. that seemed to be his primary target. And the New York could be something that was a distraction. There's also eight or nine people stabbed in the mall in Minnesota around this, you know, half hour um, time period from the bombing in New York. Go to hagmanreport.com. That's hagmanreport.com. The entire summary recap of the weekend of terrorism is there. It's posted on hagmanreport.com from start to finish. That's hagmanreport.com if you want a summary recap, if you get an idea. So, So what are we talking about here? Well, what happened is this, folks. It all began Saturday morning in New Jersey. And we're going to start there. We're just going to I'll just give you a real quick rundown with exactly what happened starting Saturday morning and how this all unfolded. Just a thumbnail sketch. Folks, Portions Nice Broadcast brought to you by ZipRecruiter.com. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. Are you, are you looking? Are you hiring? Are you a small business out there? Are you medium-sized, big business? Are you the... CEO, the, the, or the, the, the person who does the hiring at your business operation, your employer. Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place is not enough. That's why we, we found ziprecruiter.com. That's ziprecruiter.com slash free trial. We found this to be the best. You can post, uh, with ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. More on this later. But this all started Saturday morning in New Jersey. It's at about 9.30 in the morning. There was a bomb that was hidden in, inside a trash can that detonated about three-quarters of a mile from the starting line of the Seaside Semper Fi race in Seaside, Ocean County, New Jersey. This race, the target here, Joe, this was a charity run benefiting service members. Mm -hmm. There were about 3,000 people in the area at the time, 1,600 or so runners, participants in the race. And and by the grace of God, 
two things happened. The race was delayed, and the bomb, the entirety of the bomb, did not detonate. So had this gone a different direction, you would have had more people in the area where the bomb exploded, and had the bomb been 100% effective, it would have been a lot worse, a lot bigger explosion, but it was a decent-sized explosion nonetheless. That happened at nine, about 9.30 Saturday morning. And then you go to about 8.30 Saturday night. You go to Chelsea, the Chelsea District in New York. Now, folks, we've been in New York, 18 months in New York working, not too much in Manhattan, but we're talking Manhattan, 123rd Street, uh, the 100 block, 123rd Street, between the Avenue of the Americas, which is 6th Avenue, and 7th Avenue. All right, to give you an idea where this is. And, and this is, this is kind of an area where, shall we say, the 123rd? Yes, 123rd. Uh, or I'm sorry, 23rd Street. 100, I'm sorry, it was, the first bomb was 131 West 23rd between the Avenue of the Americas, which is 6th Avenue and 7th Avenue. Um, this, this is where the, um, Shall we say, this is kind of a hotbed of diversity, if you know what I mean. We're looking at the homosexual area. I hate to describe it. It's like an RT area. Well, I mean, it's known for the homosexual uh, uh, den- uh, denizens there. All right? So just keep that in the back of your mind. Just, just for between the lower Manhattan downtown district and the midtown Manhattan area. Oh, all right. Okay. I yeah. remember that because you had taller buildings in midtown and it... And it Cut down right. and Chelsea went back up when you got downtown. But the Chelsea section, right? Chelsea district. But uh, so at about eight thirty on Saturday night, a, a bomb explodes inside this dumpster or underneath the dumpster. A little bit unclear exactly the position of the bomb, but it was a, a uh, pipe bomb that was uh, held uh, had a cell phone de- de- detonation device on it. This thing was pretty pretty huge as it knocked the dumpster sent the dumpster about 150 feet if you've ever seen the dumpsters in new york or anywhere really they're pretty doggone heavy it it sent the dumpster 150 feet injured 29 people blew out windows in a four block radius give or take and uh, 20 i heard 29 people with shrapnel the worst was a puncture wound blew out car windows struck an uber um Hit hit the car, but and there's a couple of different video camera angles of the aftermath yeah. of that explosion, as well as there's video that exists of <clears throat> the man, the suspect, mm-hmm. putting the bomb there. Now, all right, so the police are called after this explosion, and of course, Drudge gets it. You know, about a half hour after it happens, or about 20 minutes, we got it about the same time Drudge got it. We put it up right away at HagmanReport.com. That's HagmanReport.com. Put it up. Send it out via social networking, Twitter, and put it on our Facebook page as well. And people were, in fact, people were calling me. We had law enforcement officers calling me here at the office, saying, "Okay, what, you know, what do you know?" And then others were saying, "Okay, here's what we know." And uh, some of the, so it was really, it was really kind of interesting. Well, a couple hours later. About uh, uh, close to midnight, a, another bomb was found just four blocks north of, or south of that area. It was at, at uh, 27th Street between 6th and 7th Avenues. Now, this uh, this bomb was identified as a pressure cooker with a flip-style phone, cell phone used as a detonator. Now, remember, and, and this is important because if you go to HagmanReport.com, check on the articles there because uh, exactly... Ten years ago, that's ten years ago, we wrote 
So in fact, we gave law enforcement this information where Muslims were buying up big lots of cell phones, the, the flip style prepaid cell phones, and doing two things with them. Um, they were experimenting with them to use as detonators for bombs, G, and they were sending them overseas to Iraq and Afghanistan at the time. When we published these articles, the FBI says, no, 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 no. Because we furnished the FBI with the postings from the Arabic language websites with the instructions and pictures, drawings of how they were used to, that were being used as detonators. We gave the FBI, we gave them this information. And they said, no, 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 no. In fact, we gave it to the NYPD who accepted it with open arms. We gave it to the New Jersey State Police. We gave it to other law enforcement agencies. We had law enforcement agencies writing us for the original source document. We gave it all. And we said, look, these are being made by Muslims in this country. The instructions are being posted by uh, by uh, individuals in the United States and in Canada. Some Middle East, but not, 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 not that many. And so we knew this 10 years ago, and they did too. But you know something? When we published it on our website, we were called, oh, well, we, no, that's, uh, that's disproven, and oh, you're just making that up, and it's, it's, yeah, okay, do you talk about frustrating? Because you see, we had this information, we gave it to them, and, and the, the uh, websites could have been monitored, and, and I'm sure they were because we kept running into FBI and CIA operatives in these different websites. So why did this was this allowed to continue? And I remember this big dust up because we had that there was a guy caught with um, with a whole bunch of cell phones in the Midwest and a bunch of cash, and of course, uh, you know, they were let go, and, and we were we were we gave this information to, to the uh, authorities and said, look. Uh, with, this is a problem, and and end the story. Uh, they said no. They 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 let these people go. You see, because th- there was that that accusation of of uh, uh, of xenophobia and of uh, Islamophobia by the Council on American Islamic Relations and other advocacy groups, including the the uh, the African American uh, side of this. Okay, aspects of this. All right, so. During this time on Saturday, another another kind of funny thing happened. I don't know how many people know this or not, but uh, somebody knowing the area, they publish a homosexual manifesto and they take credit for the bombing. They say, "Ah, this is I took credit for the bombing." Now, if you go to HagmanReport.com, the homosexual manifesto, the individual claiming responsibility for this bombing in New York and Chelsea publishes this manifesto, and suddenly it starts getting legs, developing legs, and it gets posted elsewhere. We looked at it and thought, you know what? Nah. This, it didn't feel right. doesn't have the right feel. But meanwhile, the Democratic National Socialist, Progressive, Marxist, Leninist, left Democrats and, and some of the media, they, they were pushing this narrative, this this story. <laughs> Alright? So, you know, now it's about 2, 3 o'clock in the morning on, on Saturday. We're getting... Uh, or Sunday morning, and we're getting information uh, from from street level officers in New York, and some additional information from people in New Jersey. Well, oh, let me back up here too. Saturday, at the same time, right around right around the same time of the New York bombing, my phone rings, and 
um, this is a source we have in Minnesota. And he said, did you hear the news? Well, yeah, the New York one. No, 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 no. Now, this just happened. It happened in, at the, the Crossroads Mall in, in uh, St. Cloud, Minnesota. All right. Well, here, guy walks into the Crossroads Mall, which, by the way, is a gun-free zone, and uh, slashes, stabs, otherwise attacks eight people, a total of eight people, starting outside the mall, working his way in, walking down walking down the, down the hallways, yelling, Alu Akbar, and uh, asking, at least asking one person, you a Muslim, and no, okay, bam, you know, goes after him with a knife. When it was all said and done, eight people are wounded, none seriously. Well, it depends on your definition. Serious. I mean, get, one, there get was one critical. Okay. From what I understood. All right. So, yeah, but I mean, <clears throat> no, no deaths regarding this, but, mm-hmm. uh, so you had an off-duty cop from a different jurisdiction, neighboring jurisdiction at the mall, is carrying his, uh, his firearm. He sees this take place, intervenes, tells the guy to stop. Guy doesn't goes after the off-duty cop. Guy, the cop shoots him and drops him right there. Bang. And that's like a footnote in the uh, St. Paul story. That's not being talked about too much. Well, yeah, you know, in this case, uh, never bring a knife to a gunfight. Okay, <laughs> they, 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 that's kind of kind of making light of it. But no, you've got you've got a, a somebody that, that was wearing a concealed weapon. I, granted, it was an off-duty police officer. Oh, and by the way, the attacker. Was reportedly dressed as a security guard. Again, and asking this is on HagmanReport.com. His victims, if they were Muslim or not, before yeah. stabbing yeah. them, at least one or two had confirmed that uh, as of this afternoon. Right. So, you, so this was happening at the same time New York was happening. So we were like wondering if this was okay. What is taking related. place? They're not. Well, well they're, they're not. I mean, you know, they're not related they in terms of operational uh, situ- operational uh, aspects. But I think that they're related in a different way, in a mm-hmm. larger way. All right. So s- Sunday morning, and now we're getting into Sunday, obviously, and uh, as we get into Sunday. Uh, you had uh, you had a, a manhunt going on for the people, the individual that was identified on the on the videotape. Uh, I'm just going to fast forward to 8:45 on Saturday or Sunday, 8:45 p.m. Uh, a carload of individuals, five men, were stopped by law enforcement on the uh, Verrazano Narrows Bridge in connection with the bombing earlier in the day in New York City as well as New Jersey. They were driving their SUV from Staten Island to Brooklyn on on Sunday. Some reports haven't put haven't intended to go out to JFK Airport. Now, I'm not sure about that. Uh, one law enforcement said, yeah, said, yeah, look, that was their ultimate destination. Whether one or more of those people inside that vehicle were going to go to the airport, unknown. A little interesting way of taking it to JFK. However, where they were coming from, it was reportedly um, the area of the New Jersey bombing, which <laughs> which just uh, uh, earlier, before they these gentlemen got stopped on, on the bridge, um, you had a situation, I shouldn't say bombing, a, a bomb scare, if you will, about 8 o'clock on Sunday night. Now, now let's move to New Jersey here. You had two homeless guys uh, looking for things of value in garbage cans, and they looked in this garbage can near a uh, uh, a tavern 
located very close to the Elizabeth, New Jersey train station. So they, they pick up this backpack from this, this uh, trash can. It was located in, in a trash can at North Broad Street, Julian Place, and they saw wires protruding from this thing. Right, So they dropped the backpack near the bridge that supports the train in New Jersey, you know, going out of the main station in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And uh, they take off. Well, they call the police. I shouldn't say take off. They, they call the police. They get out of the area. So the police respond, and the uh, ATF, the DHS, FBI, I mean, you know, everyone responds to this area, and they say, oh, yeah, okay. They sent a robot in. Yeah, this is a bomb. Or a drone first. Okay, this is a bomb. Test positive for a bomb. And now, meanwhile, meanwhile, you got to understand Governor Cuomo and de Blasio saying, hey, nothing to see. We don't know. We, we don't know don't anything. Don't jump to conclusions. That's right. It's irresponsible. <sighs> so, and of course, you got Hillary. You know how perky she looked that night. <laughs> uh, That's right? funny when you say that because... She yeah. looked extra tired. Yeah, she, sure, like she could barely open her eyes. That was Saturday night, by yeah, the way. On the anyway, plane. Right. But that was Saturday, just to be clear for those people out there. But anyway, so Sunday, the, the bomb squad is out looking at this backpack. So they send this robot in there, and they notice that there are five pipe bombs, uh, at least five pipe bombs in this bag, wires connecting the, the bombs and such. So... The team working the bag, what they did was the, the robot actually cut the wrong wire in, in, in the bag. And that's hence the explosion you, you probably have seen on, on Twitter, on the Twitter feed. Um, surprised the heck out of the cops. In fact, one of the sources contacted me that was there said, did not expect it. I had to go home and change after that. Um, I mean, it, obviously, they knew that there was they were messing with the bomb, but didn't expect it to detonate. I mean, that's always a possibility, but apparently that that was that was that unexpected, but nonetheless, um, you know, surprising or surprising, but nonetheless, it, it didn't hurt anyone, thankfully. And, and imagine if uh, if you saw that explosion, you would have seen what kind of damage that could have caused to people and the, the property. But the information we got. Um, now, this happened about 12.30. The explosion happened, detonation. It would be about 12.30 this morning. Um, yeah, about 12.30 this morning. Uh, quarter to one, roughly, Monday morning. Now, the information we got was this bomb cluster had the same components of earlier bombs, minus the cell phone detonators. And the working theory, and, and all of this is fluid, the working theory is they discarded the perpetrator, or perpetrators discarded this backpack, in this location without the cell phone just to get rid of it. Didn't have time. Took off. And don't forget, five guys were stopped on the Verrazano Narrows Bridge shortly thereafter. So this happened before they got stopped. Do we have a total of how many devices were found between New Jersey and New York? Well, how many devices or how many how many packs? See, I mean, there were multiple devices in the different packs. Because the Marine... Um uh, the the event you talked about the uh, race the, the yeah. marathon there was I heard five potential, well, or that was a train yeah, station that was the train station in Elizabeth okay. and then you had a couple I believe at the uh, because one uh, thing they're they're doing the, is they're painting this a lone wolf attack right you know they're out there with the narrative already 
But what troubles me is there's not like a, a running tally of the devices unless you go to each incident and read the well, stories for yourself. It doesn't. I mean, to me, it doesn't matter how many pipe bombs are in a backpack. It matters no. how many backpacks there are in the, in, exactly. in, you know, being planted. And I think, and I think that that's that's another. Well, I, I, when it, it does matter to the extent that how much manpower does it need, how right. much how much material does it need, and, and all of these, including the the pressure cooker. Now, don't forget the uh, uh, the the bombing in New York City in July fourth. Uh, we used a pressure cooker as did the Boston Marathon bombing, right? So the Boston Marathon bombing had a pressure cooker, and these plans for these bombs have been published by many in this country on Arabic language websites and have been passed around through plans uh, from Inspire magazine, which is an English language magazine for jihadists or Muslim terrorists, and for on Al Batar years, 10 years ago. On, on various websites, Albatar is the uh, Al Qaeda training manual, and again we had we have all this published, and you can look just at it to give it give you a taste on our website hagmanreport.com if you look at the cell phone uh, f- uh, cell phone uh, uh, article. But in the end, here today, Ahmad Khan Rahami, a native of Afghanistan, um, was picked up, arrested, and is being charged for the uh, in connection with the bombing in. New York, I believe it is. New Jersey, I'm not sure. And then the guy that did, did the stabbing, as I mentioned before, in Minnesota, is uh, that gentleman's name is uh, Tahir Adon. And, of course, uh, he's the guy that, Adon is the guy that killed or wounded eight people in Crossroads, at the Crossroads Mall in St. Cloud, New Jersey, so or in Minnesota. So that said, we have more to get into about this, but all of this, leads back to the question, what in the world is going on? And I think we do have a good idea, a good handle on what's going on, which we're going to discuss right after this break. You're listening to the Hagman and Hagman Report. This coming out of a weekend of terror events. Will it get worse? Absolutely, it's going to get worse. And it's a consequence of not a policy failure with respect to immigration, but the exact, I believe, the precise reason or the exact uh, goal, objectives that are being accomplished by this massive influx of Muslims into this country. It is called immigration jihad, folks. That's what we're seeing. And chaos before the election is the desired objective. We're seeing that, among other things, as well. More on the other side. You're listening to the Hagman and the Hagman Report. Doug Hagman at the helm, Joe Hagman, as well. More when we get back on the other side. Stay right where you're at. That's right. This is the Hagman and Hagman Report. Doug Hagman with Joe Hagman. Something I like to call America's premier father-son investigative reporting team. I was on uh, Hebrew Nation Radio, the Remnant Road, with uh, Daniel Hodges and his co-star Al today. Um, you can catch the archive of that, Hebrew Nation Radio, Remnant Road. It was, a, it was a fun time. I was on for about an hour and a half. Losing my voice this morning. I don't quite know why. Anyway, we were uh, talking about this and many other things. Folks, you can uh, go to HagmanReport.com for the information 
Also, you can follow us on Facebook at Hagman Report. Uh, on Facebook, Hagman Report on Facebook, where we have a number of uh, new postings there, and also on Twitter at Hagman Report. You go to HagmanReport.com, and there you can access all of our social networking feeds. Folks, bookmark HagmanReport.com. Remember, it's two N's, H-A-G-M-A-N-N, Report.com. And, um, uh, but all of the information that we're talking about tonight is contained right there at HagmanReport.com and, and uh, some information sourced only through our law enforcement sources. Uh, perhaps the, the, the media is caught up or other sources have caught up by now. But all of this, the, the blasts, the attempted bombings, and, and of course the individual in Minnesota, Somali immigrant, member of the biggest Somali group in the country and immigrated into this country or naturalized 15 years ago now you can thank you can thank the the Bush administration I believe for that and to to grease the skids for that and to build up that Somali uh, stronghold in the Midwest and you've got this Muslim Somali stronghold in the Midwest folks you got to understand what we're dealing with here this these are these are people who are refusing to assimilate, not because, well, refusing to assimilate because, number one, they don't have to, and number two, they don't intend to. How's that? And everyone wants to force the issue, especially the Democratic National Socialists, the the, the uh, Democrats, the Marxist-Leninists, the progressives, in quotation marks. They all want, you know, they all believe, well, this, uh, and if you read some of the forums with respect to the uh these these democratic forums or these political forums that are heavy in the in, in the brainwashed uh, you know popsicle stick liquors of the world. All right, you can see where what is taking place in Europe is now happening in America, and it's going to happen faster because the influx is equally is, is equally quick. However, the uh, uh, the oil and water part of the immigration is much greater in Europe. You've got You've got somewhat of a tolerance here in the United States. It's not. Plus, you've got a larger target here in the United States, meaning this we're the great Satan, of course, and they want to take us down. So this immigration jihad, the Trojan horse of of immigration, is jihad, and this is taking place here in this country. This combined with, of course, do you, let me ask you this: Do you remember the the big brouhaha with respect to the arch from the Temple of Baal? Uh, back in March, that was supposedly go to supposedly go up in Times Square. Uh, back in April, well, that was canceled, and then now we have something a little bit different, and that is the lateral arch of the Triumphal Arch at Palmara. Right, this in, is where in New York City. The um, today ISIS forces tore down or blew up the ancient ruins of Palmyra. And as Jonathan Cohn said on our show last Tuesday, he he um, compared the two to 9-11 in the sense that the U.S. and the government's defiance to rebuild these. That's right. You know, was like the, how they wanted to rebuild stronger and, and uh, without God as in 9-11 with the harbinger and tying back to ancient Israel in Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. Exactly. This is sticking your thumb in God's eye, basically. I don't know how else to describe it. This is the ultimate of hubris. Instead of repentance and asking for forgiveness, this is saying, you know what? Well, this is the ultimate act of defiance, in in Mm -hmm. my view. This understanding, and, and, well, let me just go back a little ways, because you're going to find 
leftist progressive this these Marxist sewage websites like Snopes.com, Media Matters. I mean anything with a with a uh, progressive slant, saying, "Well, this is just a bunch of hooey. It's it's nothing. It's a mountain out of a molehill. It's not what you know. It's a big lie." Well, what they're doing is they're taking a minor little little itsy bitsy pieces of this article or the story or what's taking place, and and they're they're because this is not, for example, the arch that was coming in in March or April of, of this year. This is something a little bit different. This is actually part of a different part of the from a different part of the structure, which connected the colonnade to the actual temple of Baal, as opposed to the actual arch mm-hmm. of Baal. So this is the, the the arch of triumph, as opposed to the arch leading into the actual temple. This is the arch that went from the colonnade back out to the uh, connected to, to the to the civilization. But here it's three days before, what, two days before the autumnal equinox. The timing cannot, I mean, you've got to have suspect about the timing. And moreover, you know, people will say, well, this is just a superstitious or whatever. No, it's not. What are we doing putting any type of architectural structure in a city who is no, which is known for its architecture, it's defined by its architecture. New York City is like Paris, for example, like London, is defined by its architecture. And here we are putting this, this demonic related, this ball related or bale in the Bible related, uh, structure in New York City. This is a United Nations or UNESCO, uh, heritage site, I might add. So this speaks to the globalist agenda. This speaks to the United Nations. This speaks to the the, uh, the demonic worshippers, whether you believe it or not. It doesn't matter whether the people that who write these refutations, like Snopes.com and others, believe in it or not. It doesn't matter. They don't care as long as the people behind it believe it. They understand it, and it's too bad for you. You see, this is what this whole Baal worship is about. But now... Um, this is going up, and of course we uh, we see that that uh, September nineteenth today it did arrive, and we find it interesting that uh, that New York was was selected again. It's the uh, New York was it was selected because of its uh, the indomitable human capacity to rebuild what has been lost. Speaking of the twin towers, now that was rebuilt again in the hubris you mentioned of Joe, and in the defiance. As, as discussed by Jonathan Kahn, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn and the Harbinger, and uh, uh, as recently as last week on our show. And now we're seeing this act of defiance in New York City. And don't forget, Ball, you, you, it, it's the fire god, the god of fire, and worship, sacrificial worship, meaning uh, this also speaks to the, the infant murders, Known as abortions that have taken place, uh, so what it is is the monumental arch called the Arch of Triumph, which is a Roman ornamental. I'm not, I'm citing here from the uh, uh, actual uh, uh, description of the arch. It's the archway, Roman ornamental archway in Palmyra, Syria. It was built in the third century during the reign of Emperor Septimius Severus. It later became one of the main attractions in Palmyra until it was destroyed by ISIS. In October of last year, so this is uh, uh, this is what it is, and and we are celebrating pagan deities. We as a nation are embracing and, and ex- accepting and, and celebrating pagan deities. God will not be mocked. 
So is it any, is it any wonder why we are seeing the things we're seeing right now? I don't think so. And one last thing, it's, uh, all of this is connected to, and I spoke about this on Hebrew Nation with, uh, on the Remnant Road with, uh, Dan Holdings today. One of the other things that we're seeing very quickly, I'm going to turn it over to you, Joe, is this. We're seeing in the election front, we're seeing a, a very fatigued, very, if, if you looked at Hillary Clinton when she was pushed out of the gate, uh, or pushed out of the plane, out of her bed, or whatever she was. You could see her hair was matted down in the back. And she looked horrible, and you could see that that there was a, an element of fragility there. That again, the Democratic National Socialist Progressives, these these morons, along with the minions and the morons and minions, morons who who just you know follow her, and she could be sacrificing puppies on the White House lawn, and. Everyone would still say, "Oh, this is okay," but then you get the minions of the press saying, "Well, let's see. You know, they got to take it from the front because it was signed, not too good." And you could just tell that, you know. Anyway, uh, the fragility of the Clinton candidacy is such that we've got fifty some days until election. Our question here, my question, based on research and investigation, is: Can Clinton survive? Now, when I say survive, I'm not talking physically. Can she, can her candidacy survive? Or will she be replaced or, or will it become necessary to, to replace her? Or even more, well, even worse. And I brought this up in, in that, uh, half hour video. If you go to HagmanReport.com or more precisely Hagman.com, click on the link to our YouTube channel and, and find the, the half hour video I did, 29 minute video I did about Hillary. Clinton about the constitutional crisis that we could be facing because the Constitution is not clear what happens to a candidate before election day. All right, a candidate. No, it breaks down to party uh, bylaws and rules from right. everything I can well can you, tell based on the situation. Basically, it's decided. All elections are decided at the state level, but you could have you could have a situation where you could have the uh, uh, electoral the electorates uh, deciding or handpicking another candidate or you could very well have a suspension or temporary suspension of the elections but either way it, it doesn't matter the the intent here and I'm going to end with this here's the, what the intent is in my view regardless of what happens the end game objective after much research and investigation I believe is that the if it's a Trump victory, the opponents of the nationalists and the conservatives want to cast doubt on the legitimacy of a Trump victory. Alternatively, if something does happen to Clinton, if they feel that she can't make it or the numbers are too too uh, close or whatever it might be, or, or Maybe worse than that, if the numbers are, are pro-Trump, you know, way more than they could possibly handle. Um, then, of course, I, I do believe that they're going to pull out some stops that we've never seen before, things that we've never seen before. But they cannot afford to have a non-globalist in that office. Now, there are some exceptions to that. And I'm not. I'm not saying this is written in stone. I'm not predicting anything or whatever. I'm just saying that. They're right now very concerned about this. And the bottom line here is, uh, it would be better, I think, they, I think they believe it would be better to do something now than, than to have to, uh, fully compromise a guy like Donald Trump 
because they might be able to compromise Trump or compromise the man in the office, but they certainly can't compromise the movement. That's Mm -hmm. what I'm thinking of, and that's kind of where I'm at with this. So watch the elections. And one last thing, Syria, Saturday, or Friday, Saturday, the United States bombed Syria. That's right. We bombed Syria, killed 60 troops, Syrian troops, really hacked Mm -hmm. off Putin. I mean, Putin's not a happy camper. No, he made a, a statement today, and i got to find it here. My computer's running a little slow. Yeah, he, he's calling up the U.N. Security Council saying, hey, come here. He's sitting there, there's no, he's going to bomb any plane. That and he's going to take out Israel. Syria's airspace. Or he's going to attack Israel. Uh, and he's ordered any, uh, the, the Syrian forces and the forces to, to shoot down any aircraft. Yeah. Russian, including any foreign fighters jet Israel. out of the sky. Yep. Threatening Syrian army. Uh, will be dealt with as Russian President Vladimir Putin makes that statement. And I saw the, I just today saw what happened with Syria. So I don't have all the details, but yeah, there was a, people were saying that there were more, this was targeted towards the Syrian army that has been uh, more targeted by the U.S. than ISIS has in Syria, which would contradict some of the administration's claims about drone, drone bombings and taking out ISIS leadership in different parts of this Syria. This was no accident. The, yeah, this was targeted precisely. I mean, it was either one heck of a lucky shot, if you know the topography. And and this was another thing, too, because I had to pull some strings in order to talk to somebody with information about this, because uh, I was really pulling for information. And finally, I did, and they said, look, the, you have to understand, this was, this was really a, a deliberate act by the United States. <clears throat> How this happened, and I can't, the the source I was talking to said, look, you just can't give certain information out until it hits the mainstream media, which it will, but the the location, and it's going to come from Russia as opposed to the United States, that what was hit was very, um, you have to be trying to hit it, I guess, is, is, what, is what the message was. So watch this, because this is horribly bad, and we are on the precipice of World War III. Article again, Canada, or, uh, HagmanReport.com, uh, from Saturday, HagmanReport.com. Death Race Damascus, the road to World War III. Death Race Damascus updated. That's at CanonFreePress.com as well. And, uh, I got a lot of heat over that over the weekend. In addition to the coverage on the, on the other stuff, uh, domestic stuff, I got a lot of heat. By the way, got a phone call today. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give out the name. Military connected. Said, look, you're, okay, Alex Jones, Drudge, others are being accused by places like the Huffington Post and other, other, uh, uh, so-called, uh, well, other progressive websites. And again, progressive meaning Democratic National Socialist Party. That you're, you're actually a mouthpiece of spokespeople for Russia, RT, Russian Times, Russian propaganda. Well, that will be used or could be used against them and of course against you. Act accordingly. Think about that. In other words, the censorship could be imposed upon Jones, Infowars, Drudge to some extent, uh, and of course us and others who are talking about this kind of stuff, and especially about Benghazi, uh, about uh, Libya and about the Middle East, about the Arab Spring, and of course about the Syrian war that's, that's looming ahead. So there you have it. That's, uh, that's my opening statement. Well, let's get into some uh, headlines and news that are related to what you opened with. 
Um, there's a lot of news on the illegal immigration and refugee front. The Pope even issued a statement saying, "Yep, the uh, Pope Francis encouraged Europeans and uh, America to welcome refugees, calling hospitality our greatest security against hateful acts of terrorism. Francis Saturday spoke to an alumni of Jesuit schools in Europe who were in Rome for a conference on refugees, where he went on to say, more refugees are our greatest security against terrorism. So does that make sense to you, ladies and gentlemen? Bring more. Okay, so if if 10,000, at least, or 12,000, uh, rounding it up, uh, 16,000 actually. Okay, 16,000. Was so, the, the 10,000 was the goal of 16,200 and some were, were, so was if, the number. See, if 16,000 doesn't get the job done, bring more, according to the Pope. Yeah, bring more. You see, that's going to solve everything. You talk about a Jesuit force. Now, I'm not, I'm not picking on Catholics. I'm not going to, because I was a Catholic. I went to a minor seminary and, uh, you know, I'm not picking on Catholics. I'm not at all. But you look at the Vatican, you look at the Jesuit influence of this particular Pope, look at the objectives, the globalist objectives. This man, in my view, is saying, okay, I mean, he's falling right in line with the globalist objectives. And to, to what end? To the, to, uh, we're, we're seeing this convergence of people and events here and, and, and with the elections and the leadership and the European things that are going on, the war and the Pope. And we're seeing all this, these convergence of events from immigration to, to, uh, accepting perverse and sinful behavior as normal, being more tolerant by the Pope, by the Vatican, which to me is, Oh man, be still my heart. I mean, really. Uh, so, so all of this is, is the objective. Yeah, just bring more in. Oh, and by the way, if you're if you're a you know Muslim terrorist, that's okay. You know, and we have to be more tolerant. Homosexuals, we've got to be more tolerant, uh, be more inclusive. And by the way, we all worship one God. Let's bring in the Muslim imams. Let's bring in the the uh, Hindu uh, priests and on all this, and we're gonna all because we all worship the same God according to this Pope. Well, that's part of the lie, the end times lie. We don't worship the same God. I'm sorry, no, I'm not sorry. I'm just saying we don't worship the same God. Got to reset my my browser here, but there is um, an important story that's not getting a lot of coverage in the news. Well, it's gotten some coverage today, but this really started on Friday. Um, the gas shortages in the southeast and east coast of the United States affecting more than 50 million people started last week when a gas line from Houston to New York City was ruptured. There's a lot of speculations on to what caused the rupturing of the gas um, line, but there is shortages, price hikes, and uh, a a run on the gas in the south. Uh, I heard from a, a few people who are from the North Carolina area. There are governors from North Carolina, Virginia, uh, and many other states have declared state of emergencies because of this shortage in gas. That's right. uh, people are having a hard time getting to work, getting their kids to school and whatnot. And this is all due to uh, one gas line from Houston to New York that has, um, they say, has ruptured as a some kind of natural thing that happened that nobody was responsible for. This. Well, it was erosion for the line because of lack of maintenance and, and such. But but people are seeing gas hikes from anywhere from 50 cents to a dollar in different uh, parts of the affected areas. Also, there are um, people that are putting $20 uh, caps on purchases right. across the country. And it's actually, from what I'm reading on message boards and comment sections, it's a lot worse than what's being reported 
local news stations are doing their best to kind of cover that up, but I've seen a lot of uh, news local news agencies saying one thing and people in the comment section saying some other completely different stories where well, no you, gas yeah. is available. You got the national the media gas stations are shut down in their areas, but the news media is reporting it differently for whatever reason. The, the national media won't even cover it, or at least won't cover it honestly. Why should we expect them to? But but you know, at the same time, you got Amy Goodman mm-hmm. from Democracy Now. Out there protesting up and and with the uh, uh, pipeline up pipeline. in North Dakota, right? And she, you know, there's a warrant out for her arrest for crying out loud. And, and you talk about the epitome of dishonesty, the, the way she's uh, uh, protesting it, and, and, and what she's saying, and what what that whole that whole anti movement is doing. I understand not wanting that pipeline to go through sacred ground or, mm-hmm. or you know Indian burial ground, right? Like However, that. that's not. The, 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 I mean, we don't have time to get into it right now, but there is a lot behind that, and it's much of it's lying. So, you know, folks, you got to be careful with. We all have to be careful with what we're seeing and, and hearing, and, and understanding that uh, a lot of these people who write who will say things. And I've been finding this out a lot. A lot of the people who will write things on message boards or will take to the YouTube airwaves. Huh. They don't have a clue. Their research is is about five minutes, and it's all open source. You can't do it that way. You've got to understand the bigger picture. When you look at the bigger picture and you start asking questions and you start digging down, not relying on other people's information, but you see all of these uh, people on these forums, these active forums and and different uh, political boards, all they do is parrot the the party line, and it's Mm -hmm. just so ridiculous. Back to the immigration issue. I don't know if you saw this. I'm sure you did. The U.S. government mistakenly grant, granted citizenship to 858 immigrants from countries of concern. Not only that, a number of these immigrants had security clearance issues. Yep. But how somehow mistakenly were granted. Not a mistake. Yeah, I didn't think it was no, a mistake no. either. As, uh, again, more than 800 illegal immigrants with very uh, shady pasts that weren't security concerns were let into the country without any um well during my research this weekend my contact with my law enforcement source who is connected to the periphery of dhs or the fbi i'm sorry said you know what this is part of the problem it was not done as by an accident this was done because they are overwhelmed and they just let the block they're they come in blocks in terms of background checks so you got you got a block of so many, 200, and you got a block of 400, and you got a block of 200, on and on. So sometimes it'll just sign off, and, and that's that's a very in, imprecise way of saying telling you what they did. But they basically said, "All right, here you go, bang," hoping they wouldn't get caught. But in this time, this time they did get caught, and they just chalked up saying, "Oh man, it was just a, it was just oversight. It was an accident." Folks, none of this happens by accident. There is incompetence in the government. This is not incompetence. This is deliberate. And back on the, in, into Germany, where over a million uh, Muslim immigrants have been taken in over the last few years, and the president, Prime Minister Angela Merkel, um, we've been following the upcoming election stories. Now, Merkel is wishing she could turn back time over refugees as her party makes historic losses in Berlin's state election. And the the European newspaper goes on to say, uh, with Mayor warning of resurgence of Nazis in Germany, but Angela Merkel's party has made historic losses in elections for the Berlin State Parliament after the mayor warned a resurgence of Nazis in Germany. Many voters turned out 
for the far alternative right for Germany, the AFD, which with 13% of the vote will enter the German capital's assembly for the first time according to initial projections. Okay, but, but Joe, well, hold on. But keep in mind, folks, what's happening in Germany, Germany is going to happen here in the United States because the cause and effect, the, the desired effect, soaked by the same cause it's the hegelian dialectic okay problem reaction solution what what you're seeing is the reaction mm-hmm. based on the influx of the you yeah. know we're going to shove these people down your throat so you stand up and then you're categorized in this case some rightly so but others painted by a very broad brush as nazis and the worst thing in the world you can do possibly do in germany is to call someone a nazi today oh you you do that the gloves are off. And this is what's happening in this country today. You watch the connection, the, the parallels between Germany and Europe and America and how the conservatives in America, specifically those who are anti-illegal immigration, are going to be painted. Go ahead. This will uh, continue to raise pressure on Merkel and deepen the, rips, deepen the rifts in her conservative camp. The uh, approval ratings that she has, even from her center-left Social Democrats, has dropped to 22%. That's the largest party behind Merkel compared to her Christian uh, Democratic Union poll. Their approval at only 18%, and the election is only a year away, has beaten her party into third place um, with that year to go, and she's not going to be gaining any popularity as the terror attacks and refugees continue. Now she's saying that we should put a cap on the refugees, but it's too little, too late. Folks, we're going to be having Dr. Michael Heiser up next. You can go to his website, drmsh.com or theunseenrealm.com. It's going to be very interesting. Next few hours, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back on this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. This is the Hagman and Hagman Report. Hagman and Hagman Report. Hagmanandhagman.com. That's for show information. Hagmanreport.com is for news, information, analysis, exclusive news as well. Um, a lot of information about this week's, uh, this weekend's events. Yes. And of course, uh, a report from 10 years ago about cell phones being used by the Islamic uh, terrorists as uh, detonators. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because, and we were one of the first uh, out this weekend with the with the news about the terrorist attacks, but also uh, connecting the dots between New Jersey and New York. Uh, I think we we scooped Drudge by by about thirty minutes. But folks, HagmanReport.com that's our news website. Go there. From there, you can get to our social networking sites. Also, my social networking site, Lady the Studio Dog, uh, made her appearance tonight. Uh, uh, had to take a picture as we were on our way to the studio. And, of course, uh, those people wondering, she's an Australian shepherd and Australian cattle dog, Blue Healer, uh, and she's right here in the studio with us, so keeping an eye on things, and uh, as she is every night holding down the, uh, or holding, yeah, holding down the fort when she's not trying to get on camera. Our guest, next guest, or our guest uh, this segment, uh, this uh, next few segments, Dr. Michael S. Heiser.
you heard the name. He's the author of The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. Now, that's the title and subtitle, okay? Author of The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. It's uh, it's an amazing book. Um, I first heard uh, Dr. Michael Heiser on Coast to Coast AM. I, I heard him of late talking about his book on, it was July 2nd or July 3rd, of this past year, of this year, that is. And, uh, I heard him talking to George Norrie and I, I thought, man, we gotta get him on the air. Cause, uh, and, and I, I got his book and I'm, I'm reading through his book and I'm, I'm seeing a lot of parallels with what, what we all talk about here on the Hagman and Hagman Report and Dr. Michael Heiser's teachings. Now, you might wonder if you haven't heard of Dr. Dr. Michael Heiser. He's taught, uh, at the college level for the last, uh, 12 years. He specializes in the Hebrew Bible, Northwest Semitic languages such as uh, Biblical Hebrew, Biblical Greek, Aramaic, and on and on, Egyptian, Sumerian, Phoenician, and I could go on. This guy's, yeah, his resume is, he goes on for a long time. Bible theology, the history and the religions of the ancient Near East and Second Temple Jewish literature are some of his interests. He's a scholar in the fields of biblical studies. He's a he's a scholar in re, uh, residence in uh, faith life. The makers of the Logos Bible software is actually he's the uh, social or the uh, uh, he's the academic editor of Logos Bible software. He's got a PhD, a doctorate from the University of Wisconsin Madison, Hebrew Bible and Semitic languages. He's got a master's degree from the University of Pennsylvania in ancient history, and another master's from the University of Wisconsin. He's an adjunct political uh, studies professor in the Liberties Seminary Distance Educational Program, and he teaches history courses at uh, Whatcom Community College and Western Washington University. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, barely literate, right? No, he's got <laughs> he's got a lot. He's got a lot. Um, before we bring him on, I just want to read, uh, just want to reference, paraphrase, if you will, uh, something. Uh, from his book, just briefly, kind of set the tone for this interview. Just set the tone. Um, now, let me preface this by saying this. Uh, having been an investigator for the last three decades myself in the investigative field, what's the best evidence? Because oftentimes we, we, we look for the best evidence when we're dealing with a criminal case or a civil case. What's what's best evidence? The best evidence is the original item. Whether it... It's not a copy of a copy of a copy. No, no. It's the original document. It's the original item. It's the original fingerprint. It's the original whatever it might be, the original section of DNA. That's the best evidence. That's what we, that's what we address and take in the court. About 15 years ago, it's my understanding that Dr. Heiser, and he can correct me when he comes, comes on here momentarily, uh, was uh, in the service and he heard... Uh, or he was, uh, he was directed to Psalm 82, the passage, uh, uh, to Psalm 82 in the Hebrew Bible, and noticed that that, uh, that was different in Hebrew than it is, that was from his, from the language that he was, or from the English language. And, uh, ba- essentially realized, and again, this is 15 years ago, realized that what you think you know, you really don't know. You go, you've got to go back to the, uh, to the source document. As I was saying, that's the best evidence. 
Well, his book is a product of his research and studies, about 15 years worth, going back to the source documents, the Bible. The source documents for the Bible itself. It's Dr. Michael Heiser's work, all right? And from that, his book, The Unseen Realm, was written. But he writes this, and I'm just going to say this, and I'm going to bring him on. In the first part of his book, he he, he admits he said uh, he said uh, there's nothing in this book in his book that will challenge your uh, there's nothing that's inconsistent with God being God. All right, there's there's um, there's nothing that will overturn the important apple 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 parts of the Christian doctrine. For example, Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ. God is God. However, he writes, you'll come across plenty of mind grenades, and I kind of like that mental picture, mind grenades. Have no fear, it'll be a fascinating faith-based or faith-building exercise. What you'll learn is that a theology of the unseen world that derives exclusively from the text understood through the lens of the ancient pre-modern worldview of the authors informs every Bible doctrine in significant ways. In other words, Folks, when you read this book, you're going to look at, you'll never look at your Bible the same way again. This is going to be our discussion tonight. His goal, he writes, is simple. When you open your Bible, Dr. Michael Heiser writes, I want you to be able to see it like the ancient Israelites or first century Jews saw it, to perceive it and consider it as they would have. Don't contaminate it with your Western mindset. Don't contaminate it with modern thought. He writes, I'm going to turn it over now. He writes, I want their supernatural worldview in your head. I might be uncomfortable, but there you have it. Dr. Michael Heiser, thanks for joining us tonight. Hey, thanks for having me, and I I enjoy that introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you know, I I got your book, and it's a wonderful book. It's it's a... It would be a postgraduate uh, level book written in such a way that even a guy like me can understand it. Well, that was that was the goal. Um, you know, your listeners can go up to uh, Amazon and read the reviews, and per- there's almost 300 reviews of the thing now, which is right. is great. But my favorite ones are the ones that say something like. Well, I was a little nervous because this had lots of footnotes in it, but wow, I could actually read it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and yeah, yeah, that was the point. You know, I, I, you related my sort of watershed event uh, with uh, Psalm 82 that, you know, I got, uh, you know, God sort of jerked me around, and you, it was one of those "what you know may not be so" moments. Mm-hmm. And I can remember another one. Uh, once I started struggling with. You know, the text of Psalm 82 and all the ripple effect of the implications of it. I can remember sitting, uh, working on a particular point of this and thinking to myself, you know, this just, this just isn't right. It, it, why should I be the one sitting here, you know, sort of getting new glasses and enjoying reading the Bible again for the first time because I, I mean I was in I was in a doctoral program I had taught biblical studies for years and here I am having this experience and I thought this is just not right that that the average person in church doesn't have this experience and I, I just I remember you know just plain as day sitting there thinking you know what 
I could do this. I could take high scholarship and again with the goal of having the Israelite in, in their head, the supernatural worldview in their head, I can make this translatable to the non-specialist. I, I think I can do that. And then, you know, that the result of that was a 15 year journey uh, to try to do that. So I love the reviews where again people are like, oh, I wasn't sure about this. You know, it was Again, it, it looked detailed, and it wasn't like you know, sort of the normal things that I read. But wow, I actually understood it. Yeah, you <laughs> that's, know, that's it, really gratifying. It, 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 I did, you know, and it's, it, it's an amazing read. Um, I had to go over, well, like any other book, you have to go over a few things a couple of times, and you think, well, wait a minute, did I read that right? Just to make sure. But <laughs> you know, I, I will agree with you. There is nothing in the book that. That is inconsistent, obviously, with the Bible, or inconsistent with uh, you know Jesus Christ being our, our Lord and Savior, or right. God being God. You know, um, and it, it, it's but but you're taking this and you're kind of just grabbing me by the hand. At least this is my experience. You grab me by the hand, you pulled me over to the other side of the room to look at the object in the room a tad differently from a different perspective, and that's yeah. That- that's, That's really the gentle metaphor. <laughs> 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 when, I, when I'm, when I'm, uh, I mean, I'm used to, I'm used to now just going to churches and various groups and saying things and having people look at me like I got two heads, you know. But typically, if I'm in a church, I'll say, "Look, you know what? What I'm going to take you through today. I, I lived myself. Everybody says their book is different. Everybody says their book's going to change this or that." In my case, I actually mean it, and I know it will because I lived it. And I, the metaphor I often use is, it's like you're, Mike isn't going to say that, oh, you thought the gospel was A, but no, it's really B. It's not like that. It It is what you think it is, but there's just a, a richness to Scripture, an interconnectedness of passages and ideas that we miss because we can't read scripture the way again an Israelite would have. And I, I use the small group Bible study metaphor. You know, we've all been in these things. We know how they work. You know, you're sitting around there in a circle and you got your Bible open on your lap and you know, the leader's at whatever passage it happens to be. And so you read that and then he looks around and says, well, what, what do you think that means? You know, what, what does that mean to you? Well, if there was a, a first millennium or a second millennium BC Israelite sitting there in the room with you, when you got to that guy, <laughs> his right. answer is going to be so different than anything you've heard before that it's going to be uncomfortable. In fact, you'll probably all congregate together. Oh, should we invite that guy back? You know, that just kind of frightened me uh, because it's so different. But yet, if you really think about what he was saying, it's going to be consistent with thoughts that you already had. It's just the path is quite different. It's like getting in a car. You know, Mike, I need to go over to this point or that point. And I say, yeah, I can get there. I know the way. And you get in, and after a minute or so, you start looking out the window, and nothing looks familiar. And you're wondering, who is this crazy man? You know, what is he going to kill me? What am I doing in this car? <laughs> and and yeah. I, I, I just tell people, look, I know how to get you there. Along the way, I might run over some pet idea you have that's just really not helpful, and I'll run it over for you. <laughs> but I'll also show you other ways to get there, 
And those ways, again, the, the dirty little secret of the book is nothing in the book is original to Mike. This is all peer-reviewed high scholarship that I have tried to make accessible or digestible for the people who are actually interested. There still are some of these people out there who are actually interested in the text of Scripture. There are still people in churches out there that that's what they're hoping they get when they go. And unfortunately, that often is not the experience. And, you know, there, there are just people out there that just know there's got to be more to the Bible than, you know, what, what, you know, what they experience on a weekly basis. And, and I'm, I'm here to say your intuition is correct. You are really on target here. And I'm, I'm hoping this will help you, uh, you know, give you the lay of the land. Um, and then, you know, just know sort of what to look for and how to look at scripture in such a way that it's not filtered through a particular tradition or even, again, modern approaches to explaining away certain uncomfortable passages. Interesting. And, and you're, you're right on that. Now, before we get into the meat of this, and folks, um, we're talking with Dr. Michael S. Heiser, his website's theunseenrealm.com. That's theunseenrealm.com. And as well as Dr. M or drmsh.com, which is obviously Dr. Dr. Michael S. Heiser, MSH, drmsh.com. Isn't that clever? Oh, geez. <laughs> original. <laughs> Going to yeah. the original source. But, <laughs> you know, uh, you, and, uh, Folks, you can also uh, catch him. He's got the Naked Bible podcast via his websites. But let me ask you something. If I can just veer from the mm-hmm. content of the book just momentarily, because sure. I, this is something that, that I'm gonna, I don't want to blindside you, and I know this is not your original work, but you did comment on this, and I know you, you're familiar with this. One of the things that I really personally was interested in, and I saw I saw your video on this, and, and I thought, my goodness, Somebody actually speaking on this, um, and that, that's the birth of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And um, I always maintained that, based on my research of other people's research and my findings, based on their findings and and, and going out, I always maintained, and I've publicly stated on this broadcast that Jesus was born on September 11th, our calendar, okay, um, three BC. And mm-hmm. the signs are in the heavens. And, and people say, well, why in the world? Who cares? I mean, uh, I mean I'd mean, i love to know, but, but why is that important? And here's mm-hmm. my perspective, and then I'll let you comment, because we have a break at the end of the, at the bottom of the hour, and then we can get into the meat of your book um, after that. But in discussing this, here's why I think it's important, because I think that there are demonic forces out there. Call them what you will, Luciferian, globalist objectives, whatever they might be, that are perverting things like the birthday of Jesus Christ for their own gain. For example, 9-11-2001, was that date just just happened to be that date, or was that date planned for a specific reason? 9-11-01. My contention is, I'm going to go out a little bit further, and I don't have any evidence to support this. This is just my supposition based on my own investigation, that, yeah, that date's important to somebody. More than Christians, it's to the people who are running things, if you will, or the unseen hand, and they exploited that date for their own gain. Uh, they, they perverted that date for their own reason. That's just my view, and no one has to agree with it. Certainly you don't have to agree with it. But uh, what made you 
what made you what made you do that uh you know identify that date as the birthday mm-hmm. of Jesus Christ well i I do take revelation twelve as uh, an example of astral prophecy uh, and that's that's actually a, a known genre in ancient literature and when I came across uh, the work of of e l martin and and read his book The Star that Astonished the World, I found the uh his argument you know pretty persuasive uh, i don't you know endorse other things that martin wrote or or, or thought. But I thought that he did a really good job with this, and you know, I, I wasn't at the time, you know, quite certain about it. But you know, being an academic, you know, I, I decided to look and, and see, well, hey, has anybody else, you know, really thought about Revelation 12 in these terms? And there were a number of scholars in past centuries, but th- there's a couple in particular in that are current that recognize uh, the validity of an astral approach to a number of things in the book of Revelation that are, I don't even know if the, the guy I'm thinking of is even a believer, but he's a, he's a New Testament social sciences professor. And that drew me in a little bit more. And when I started to see the coherence of the idea, of course, the first objection is, well, that means Herod had to die in 1 BC, and that, that's impossible. That can't be the case. Um, I, I actually just posted on September 11th recently, uh, about this uh, briefly and, you know, footnoted two articles uh, that, you know, are, are, it's serious scholarship. I don't do anything that isn't, you know, peer-reviewed. and it, It's not, you know, somebody's website has this idea and posted and I'm going to footnote it. That isn't the way I do things. So I'm, I'm directing people to good research that says, well, this has been rethought uh, and the, a 1 BC death date for Herod is quite possible. And not only that, it's probably what the evidence actually reflects. And so when I, you know, start seeing things like this, it, I'm drawn in, it makes sense. I see explanatory power. I, I'm one of these guys that I like when things have explanatory power, not just for what I'm looking at, but for five or six other different things that I know are related. And this is one of those. I think the date is important uh, because of the correspondence to Tishri 1. It's the, it's the inaugural day of you know, the, in Israel when they inaugurated new kings. I think the, the, the imagery that gets associated with it is significant. There are connections uh, of this date to what I will loosely call the reversal of the transgression of the watchers. I actually just finished a a manuscript for Tom Horn for uh, Defender Publishing on uh, the Book of Enoch. It's called Reversing Hermon. And the, the, the working subtitle, which Tom wants to change to something flashier, is The Importance of the Transgression of the Watchers for New Testament Theology. Uh, there are things like the birth date and the signage, the symbology associated with it, that telegraph the point that the Jewish expectation was that the Messiah was going to come not only to take care of the Genesis 3 problem, okay, the problem of human mortality and the need for everlasting life and estrangement from God because of the sin in Eden, but also the Watcher problem. And we're not used to thinking in terms like that, but that book is the same as Unseen Realm. Every chapter is based on a dissertation or a couple, a handful of peer-reviewed articles. Nobody's collected it. So when I look at the at the cumulative evidence that that the Messiah was not just there to be the king of Israel, you know, and then the Jewish expectation we're going to get rid of the Romans, it was so much more significant than that. This is the new Noah. This is the person whose life and ministry and and nature is going to 
roll back the effect of other divine rebellions that frankly you don't really hear too much about in church but to second temple period Jews intertestamental Jews they were well aware of these ideas and these expectations now in modern times I kind of look at what happened on September 11th 2001 as sort of a shot across the bow uh, by evil in other words I do believe there is a greater intelligence that understands the significance of this date for Christian history whether Christians understand it or not uh, and and that's telegraphed by something like this um, you know this is why I consider a lot of these these sorts of things important it, it's not that oh I'm going to go pursue and find out exactly who did what when and where and why I think there's actually the more important idea that this should draw our attention to the fact that you know we look at geopolitics and we forget we forget the biblical theology that that the the geopolitical machinations of men are being moved and manipulated by unseen powers by the fallen sons of God you know who were given allotment over the nations by the God of Israel at the Tower of Babel event and even to say that that's foreign to what a lot of Christians have ever heard well I didn't read that in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel no you didn't but you probably never looked at Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9 and realized that it was about Babel because it talks about the division of the nations it being you know, allotted according to the number of the sons of God. Um, you know, there are just a number of things like this that I, th- I think make the date really significant. Interesting how, how that all comes together. And even more interesting, I think, when you look at this from the, I think as you put it, the original author's perspective or context, you know, when this was written, you're looking at the, you're taking the source document, you're looking at the, the author of that document, you're looking at the language in which it was written and removing any bias, uh, or any contamination by our own eyes based on our yeah, own experiences. It- and that's why I appreciated, you know, how you introduced it because, you know, in, in the book I talk about the Christian propensity to be selectively supernatural. Mm. You know, you, you, you can't really walk into a church and accuse Christians of not being, you know, supernatural. They, again, they, they just want to pick up stones <laughs> and stone you. <laughs> uh, but the subtitle of the book is there for a reason, recovering the supernatural worldview of the Bible. I think, I do think it's been lost. We don't really realize that you know, most Christians, well, I believe in God, I got, you know, the deity of Jesus, I've got the Trinity, I got Satan and angels and demons, and there we go. Well, the cast of characters is much bigger. The, the view, the worldview, again, the sense, the belief system of how that world connects with ours has a number of layers to it that you will never hear in church. And again, I can say that. I've been a Christian for over 30 years. You know, I've, I've taught in church plenty of times. I've taught at a Bible college. I went to seminary, the whole bit. Okay, a lot of the stuff in my book I never heard of until I, again, had this moment in graduate school that I, you know, I believe was the unseen hand of providence. Um, it wasn't, Mike is so smart he figured this out. No, I, God had to sort of throw this at me and, and, uh, you know, alert me to the fact that what I knew was, you know, I, I was just missing a whole lot of things. And I'm so thankful for it. But a lot of Christians, again, I know because I lived it, just never really sort of 
you know, to use a matrix analogy here, they never sort of go behind the veil and see all that an Israelite or a first century Jew would have seen and, and be able to think their thoughts after them. A lot of what we think we know about angels and demons really is filtered through church tradition um, or even important books in the history of Western civilization like Paradise Lost that, that sort of become unconsciously part of the, the theological canon for what gets taught in church. You know, it, it's it's not there when it when it comes to actually the text of scripture. Doctor Heiser, if you could hold that thought, we're coming up against the break. But when we come back, I want to start right where you left off the yeah. ancient context that we miss specifically from angels and demons, and then we can work our way out from there. Folks, you're listening to the Hagman and Hagman Report with Doctor Michael Heiser. His website, uh, drmsh.com. And theunseenrealm.com. Also, Divine Council. Just Unseen Realm. Unseen Realm. We'll be right back after these short messages. You're listening to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. Stay with us. You know what? I was wrong. The Unseen Realm. Dr. Michael Heiser, his book, The Unseen Realm. His website, Joe is right, theunseenrealm.com. Also, drmsh.com for Dr. Michael S. Heiser.com. DRS or drmsh.com. Again, his book, The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. You know, the supernatural worldview has been lost by, well, I'll just say it differently, has been contaminated by Western thought and Western biases of all types. And, um, you know, we have to, the best way to understand the Bible, and I agree with Dr. Heiser on this, of course, you know, he's got so many <laughs> letters after his name. Well, um, my goodness, a whole, I think it was like two rows of letters after his name. I'm not sure. But anyway, um, yeah, why wouldn't I agree with them? Folks, uh, let me ask you this. Are, do you own a business, a small business, medium, large business? Or are you an employer? Are you in a position? Are you the head of personnel somewhere? Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place, not enough anymore to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, I got a, I got a website for you. You need to post your job on all the top sites. Now you can through this one website. It's ZipRecruiter.com. That's ZipRecruiter.com. You can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. It's got a wonderful user interface. I took it for a test drive. I like it. It's easy to, to work. You can find candidates in any city, industry, nationwide. Just post once. Watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy to use interface there's no juggling of emails there's no calls to your office there's no time that you would spend uh, on the phone or again answering emails you can quickly screen candidates rate them and hire the right person fast through that user interface it's a great tool find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million count them 1 million businesses and right now 
our listeners, listeners to this program, can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free, for free, right now. If you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. One more time, to try for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. Details on the website as well. Now, again, Dr. Michael S. Heiser, his website, drmsh.com and theunseenrealm.com also has the Naked Bible podcast uh, as well from his website. John. And his book is The Unseen Realm. Yep. Um, folks, you can go to his website and order that or go to Amazon. Uh, right before the break, Dr. Heiser, you were talking about uh, what we miss in the ancient context of the Bible, and then you, you started to mention angels and demons. And I read through um, some of your uh, work on your websites, and I watched some of your uh, videos that you have. Uh, I can't remember the which videos I watched. Um, oh, they were pertaining to the word Elohim in the in the Bible in, in Psalm 82, um, mm-hmm. and it was very good. Can you get into the angels and demons part of what we miss in the context of the English language versus what is really said in the Hebrew Bible? Yeah, it. <clears throat> there's a lot that could be said here, as you can imagine. Um, angel is basically a job description. In other words, the, the Hebrew term mal'ach and angelos in Greek doesn't really tell us what a thing is, but it tells us what a thing does, Okay, a, a heavenly being does. Um, we typically don't look at it that way. We sort of use angel, and then the, you know, for the bad guys, demons as kind of blanket terms to cover everybody. And we don't even think about, you know, what a, what a, an entity is as opposed to what it does, where, it, what its rank is and hierarchy and all that stuff. We really don't think about those things. We blur, for instance, principalities and powers, uh, in the New Testament parlance with the demons that Jesus casts out. Again, a, a first century Jew would not equate those things. So I could give you a number of examples. We might as well start in the Old Testament. Uh, you're talking about Elohim. And that, of course, you know, refers back to Psalm 82, which, again, was the watershed moment for me. I, again, as I relate in the book, I don't know what the conversation before church that morning was about, but I'll never forget the way it ended. That my my colleague, a friend, who was also in the Hebrew department, just handed me his Hebrew Bible and said, "You need to read Psalm 82 in Hebrew," and it's a pretty simple psalm. So I did, and the first verse just hit me like a lightning bolt. We have Elohim Nitzav Ba'adat El, which is God, capital G, singular. God has taken his place, or takes his stand in the divine council, and then the second line is. The care of Elohim Yishpot, in the midst of the Elohim, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. There you have Elohim occur, occurs twice in the same verse. The grammar, you know, we'll try not to do too much of a grammar spasm here, but the first one has to be a singular entity because Nitzav is a singular participle. Grammar tells you it's capital G-O-D. The second one has to be plural because you can't be in the midst of one. You have to be in the midst of a group. So we have a group of Elohim. This, thankfully, is not the Trinity, because if you read verses 2 through 5, these are not good guys. God is angry with them and is going to judge them in verse 6 and 7 with mortality. He's going to strip them of their mortality because they're corrupt. So we can't have a Trinity here. We have God, the God of Israel, 
presiding over a bunch of Elohim. And when I first saw that, my first thought was, how in the world could I have missed that? Because, I mean, I've, I've taught a lot. You know, I got a master's in Hebrew. I'm here at a doctoral program. How did I miss that? And the answer, as I came to realize, was that I'd been reading it in English, and, and a lot of this is filtered out of certain translations. And the reason it's filtered out, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's not sinister. It's just that G-O-D-S was viewed as something that was impermissible in the translation. And again, I'm not a polytheist, so my one of my second thoughts was, well, boy, that looks like a pantheon, but I'll bet Jesus knew this passage. <laughs> I'll bet Paul was familiar with this. I'll bet they knew what was going on here. So I need to find out what is going on here in Psalm 82, and, and I did. Now, the, what what happens is, Again, if you introduce this to people on radio or in church or whatever, they, they get real nervous because, you know, the whole monotheism thing. And that's because we, again, are modern. We're, we're, we're modern Westerners. You know, we're, we're not looking at this like the biblical writers did. What I mean by that is when we see the letters G, O, and D. Well, let me be honest with you, uh, Dr. Hauser. You made me sure. nervous. You made me nervous. <laughs> I was nervous too <laughs> when I first saw it. Again, I, I've lived it too. But I, I came to realize that we see the letters G, O, and D on a paper, on a screen, and we mentally, just reflexively, because of, of, of how we're taught, we assign a specific set. Now, all these words are important, so, so listen closely. We assign mentally a specific set of unique attributes to the letters G, O, and D. So that when we see it, we think of omniscience, you know, omnipotence, sovereignty, eternality, you know, all these attributes of God, the God of the Bible. So we, we front load a bunch of attributes on the letters G, O, and D. So when you put an S on it, that's why it creeps us out. Okay? And that it should. Okay? But the biblical writer didn't look at Elohim that way. In other words, he didn't assign a specific set of attributes to the term Elohim. And you say, Mike, how do we know that? Should we just take your word for it? No. You know that if you want to do something thrilling and exciting, like look up all the occurrences of Elohim in the Hebrew Bible and then look through each one. There's 2,300 of them, so it'll take you a while. But you don't need to do that. I'm, I'm going to tell you what you're going to find. But you can check me if you want. Elohim is a term used of half a dozen different entities, different spiritual entities. Now, that alone tells you that the biblical writer isn't equating the term with a specific set of attributes. Otherwise, they would only use it of the God of Israel. They wouldn't use it of other things, but they do use it of other things. Here in Psalm 82.1, we have an occurrence that the gods that God, the God of Israel, is judging. We have the gods of the nations called Elohim. We have the the sons of God who are assigned, again, the nations in Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. In verse 17, those beings that seduce Israel into idolatry are called Elohim. They're also called Shadim, which most English translations translate as demons. Uh, you know, we have the, the deceased Samuel, the spirit of the dead in 1 Samuel 28, when Saul goes to the medium at Endor and says, hey, God won't answer my prayers. I need to talk to Samuel. 
and she does whatever she does. We're not told what she does, but she gets freaked out when she, when it, it like works, and she then she kind of knows who's in the room with her, and she's scared that she's going to be put to death or something. But she says in the Hebrew text, "I see Elohim coming up out of the ground," and Saul says, "What does he singular? What does he? What does that Elohim look like?" And she describes him, and he's like, that's him, that's Samuel. And then they have a conversation. And we know it's Samuel because he knows things that Samuel would know and that God, information that God had given him earlier when he was alive. But the point is, no Israelite, no worshiper of the God of Israel would think this thought. Hey, I bet my dead cousin is on the same level in terms of attributes as the God of Israel. I'll bet my dead aunt is just like the God of Israel. You say, well, that's that's absurd. It's stupid. Well, they're both called Elohim, aren't they? Again, no Israelite's going to think this. Okay. So they I mean, don't use... Right. I mean, if you just think about it, they're not going to use the term if the term carries with it a specific set of unique attributes. So that the biblical writers didn't look at Elohim the way we look at G-O-D. That's the disconnect. So you ask yourself, well, what does Elohim mean then? All it is, it's not a difficult term. You would use Elohim to describe a being who by nature is disembodied and lives in the spiritual world. So Elohim isn't about attributes. It's sort of like where you live. It's like your address. Okay, if you're in the spiritual world, you're by nature disembodied. You're an Elohim by definition. So the, what an Israelite, a, a true faithful Israelite would believe is something like this. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is an Elohim. He's one of many Elohim. But none of those other Elohim are him. Period. Exclamation point. Yahweh is an Elohim, but no other Elohim is Yahweh. So if you go, again, if you're thinking like the orth, the, the, the true faithful Israelite, when you read in your Hebrew Bible that Yahweh is the God of all gods, guess what? It means exactly what it says. He is Lord of all Elohim. He is the God of gods. There is none like him. By definition, he is different. Now, in the spiritual world, there's rank, there's hierarchy. The Elohim are not all equal. Yahweh gets described in lots of passages uniquely. He is the one who created all the other ones. He's the one who created every material thing. He's the one that's so- sovereign. He is the one that's omnipotent. He is the one that's eternal. These descriptions are nowhere applied to any other Elohim. They just aren't. Yahweh is unique. He is ontologically in a species by himself. He is species unique, as I like to say. So that's how we understand Elohim. You go back to Psalm 82, and it's very normative theology. You know, God is Lord of everything in the spiritual world. And he is going to judge these other Elohim who are in rebellion. They have abused the people assigned to them in their nations, they have become corrupt. They don't rule them according to the laws of, of justice that God, the God of Israel, has created. Uh, the, you know, the, there's a number of paths. Isaiah 34 is another one that has God judging the gods. You know, the day of the Lord. He, he is, he's saying, look, verse 6, I said, you are gods. Where there's Elohim too. 
your gods, sons of the Most High, plural, all of you, but you're going to die like men. Only the God of Israel has the authority and the power to take the immortality away from a divine being. And so he, this is a psalm about punishing the other divine beings. And it ends with the psalmist saying, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Why is that language significant? Because way back at Babel, God had disinherited the nations because of, they were disobedient. They didn't overspread the earth. They didn't do what he wanted to do. And he assigned the nations to lesser Elohim. They were like placeholders. I'm divorcing humanity. I'm sick of this. Here we are after the flood. You're still not doing what I asked you to do. You go build this tower instead of dispersing a ziggurat, the Tower of Babel. You built one as part of a temple complex. They're all over the ancient Near East. You built it to bring the deity to you. And God is essentially saying at the Babel event, I will not be tamed. Okay, I don't listen to your beck and call. I told you to do something and you're still not doing it, so fine. You don't want me to be your God? I'm going to give you over to somebody else. We'll see how that works. It's sort of the Romans 1 event, God giving them over of the Old Testament. And what does God turn around and do right after he, he judges the nations and assigns them to lesser, you know, lesser Elohim? He calls Abraham in the very next chapter and says, now watch, I'm going to start over. This will be my family. This, these will be my people. And he makes a covenant with Abraham. And in the covenant, he says, it's through you now and your seed that all these other nations will still be blessed. God hasn't, hasn't forgotten them completely. And Paul is thinking of this theology in Acts 17 when he comments that the division of the nations was somehow to bring the nations back to God through Jesus. Again, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament context for all this, statements like that in Paul don't make any sense. But Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They mediate between God and somebody else. Okay, You're supposed to live a life of holiness, to be attractive to the other nations, so that they'll want to come back. You're going to do crazy stuff like not have idols. You're not even going to have a police force. You're going to live according to the laws of God. And the laws of God aren't you know, this, this yoke around your neck, you know, to make life miserable, God's laws are given to you because God knows what will make human relationships the most prosperous and the most blessing. And if you, if you live this way and worship the true God and He's right there among you and with His presence, that's going to attract the nations back, you know, who have been punished at Babel. And we know, we know how it works out. This only starts you know, to pick up steam, you know, with the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ministry of the apostles, you know, in, in particular Paul, what happens at Pentecost. Pentecost is a reversal of the nations that were disinherited at Babel. Again, we don't read things this way, but the Israelites are, are going to be picking up on all these connection points. And what I'm trying to do in Unseen Realm is show you the connection points so you can follow the breadcrumb trails. And again, and begin to think like an Israelite because you'll begin to see how the passages are connected to each other. And all of this, I have this little motto, if it's weird, it's important. Okay, There are a lot of strange passages in the Old Testament that are explainable, parsable. They're, they're completely understandable 
if you approach it from this kind of framework, you know, what scholars call cosmic geography, you know, that Israel is Yahweh, is tied to Yahweh, and the other nations, you know, are under the dominion of other gods who become hostile to Yahweh. Um, where do the other nations get their pantheons? Well, they got, they got them because God punished them with them. Okay, God divorced the nations, and he punished them. You know, they're just all sorts of things. I mean, it's hard for me to sort of just sit down and and chat about about the book. You know, again, most listeners, of course, haven't haven't read the book. But again, I'm it's not marketing shtick. Okay, I am a I am a hopelessly inept marketer. But all I can do is tell you the truth. You, if you read Unseen Realm, you will not read your Bible the same way again. I know that because it happened to me. I, I don't know that because I, I'm a big marketer guy. Okay, I just I'm just telling you my own experience. And again, if you read the reviews or listen to people who've read it, they, yeah, it's the same thing. And, and again, I don't want readers to get angry. Sometimes readers get angry and they say, "Why wasn't I ever taught this in church?" Well. There are lots of reasons why you know I could speculate on on why, and some of the speculations aren't real. Do, do they ever get angry at you though? I mean, I would imagine, <laughs> you know. Well, you, you yeah, know. I, I, there are people who who get angry and 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 shut me off, but I I expect that. I mean, I I had to sort of cross this Rubicon, you know, 15 years ago in graduate school. Again, when when the Lord gave me the thought, you know, somebody needs to take. Biblical scholarship. Somebody needs to to take this stuff that you're loving <laughs> and make it digestible for the normal person who won't go to graduate school. They won't go to seminary. There are people in every church that are starving for content. They need to read this. And so I, I had this thought, and when I started doing that in my own little immediate circle, you know, it kind of leaks out of you. Yeah, I lost friends. I lost a job. Um, you know, it, I understand that, but I, I just reached the point where I thought, in my role as a professor and then as a writer, uh, you know, eventually as a blogger and a podcaster, all this kind of stuff, that it was wrong. It was morally wrong for me to protect people from their own Bible. I'm just not going to do that anymore. It, I don't it, think it's a service to people who want to know Scripture. I agree. I, I mean, we have to. I mean, we're all adults here, and, and we have to look at the. We have to well, be we intellectually be. honest. Well, that's right. That's right. And uh, it's you. You've opened a couple of doors for me. Really, two specific doors um, that other authors have not been able to do or haven't done. Maybe that wasn't their intent. But one of the one of the doors you opened for me is. Um, by reading your book and listening as well, folks, you can listen to uh, Dr. Michael Heiser's podcast and lectures on YouTube. Just go to uh, drmsh.com, unseenrealm.com. But two things. Why we are here, mm-hmm. and, and maybe this is kind of going backwards. That you, you, you touched on that, um, that and, and kind of brought that home for me because I've always wondered, why are we here? Why do we exist in the form that we do? Why does God need us? That's one. And the second thing, um, well, that, that's a huge thing, I suppose. We can 
uh, I don't know if, if you can just touch on that because I, I got a lot of comfort from your explanation. Um, yeah, we, it, I mean, all, a lot of this, a lot of the council talk and sons of God talk, um, again, familiar terms that we encounter as Christians, whether it be in church or reading the New Testament, you know, things like we're called children of God. But as many as received him to them, he gave the authority to become the sons of God. You know, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. And then John adds, I love it. I just love when he adds this. And that's what we are. <laughs> and then he starts talking about what we will be, you know, being like like Christ. You know, Paul tell ask believers in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that you're going to rule over angels? Don't Don't you get it? And you ask yourself, where are they getting these ideas? They're getting them from the Old Testament. They're getting them. There's a reason why we are, the same terms are used of us as are used of God's divine family. There's family terminology, family metaphors, words like adoption, sonship, children of God. There's all that, but there's also the way God talks about his counsel. In, 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 and God doesn't need a counsel, but he uses one because he likes his intelligent creatures to participate with him in getting things done. So this participatory element, you know, God's house, you know, we, we know all about God's house, we're going to live there. It's also a family business. There are things to do. And so God looks at us as agents of his own. Imagers is really a key term from Genesis. We're created to image God, to represent him, to be him in embodied form as though he were here. And this is why Jesus is called the express image. This is why we're being conformed to the image of his son. None of this language is coincidental. It is all deliberate telegraphing of ideas that connect the Testaments together. So who are we? We are God's family. God wanted a family. In fact, he wanted a blended family. He already had the divine one with him. Sons of God, Job 38, were there before he created humans. But he wants an embodied family, and he wants those two families to be blended together and live in this cool place called Earth. And in fact, you know, it gets started in Eden, and so God commands the embodied humans that he's created and said, look, here's what I want you to do. It's a big job, so be fruitful and multiply. But then what your task is, is to make the rest of the world like this place, like Eden. And we'll all be here with you because where I am, my family is, and my family works for me too. So they're going to be here, you're going to be here, we're all going to be one big family working together to maintain and enjoy this place. I'm right here with you. Heaven comes to earth. This is what Eden is and what it was about, a blended family enjoying the good gifts of God. Now, when all that, you know, runs, you know, know, everything just goes, you know, awry. Again, because as part of imaging, God shares his attributes with us and also with divine beings. This is why there's plural language in Genesis 1.26. Let us create humankind in our image, but when they're actually created, it's only God doing the creating in his image. Look at verses 26 and 27 in Genesis 1. You get plural and singular back to back. Why is that? It's because we know who the creator is, 
and we know who we're supposed to image, that's him, but somehow we and God and the members of God's host, the ones he's speaking to in Genesis 1, we're connected some way. Dr. Heiser, that way is if the you concept could, of imaging. If you could hold that thought, we are right up against the break. We will start here when we come back. Folks, you're listening to Dr. Heiser on this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. His book, The Unseen Realm, you can go to theunseenrealm.com or drmsh.com. We'll be right back. Hagman and Hagman, that's Hagman and Hagman.com, HagmanReport.com for news, information, analysis, current events from a biblical perspective. But uh, speaking of biblical perspective, Dr. Michael S. Heiser, Dr. Michael S. Heiser, author of The Unseen the Unseen Realm, TheUnseenRealm.com, uh, Part 1, First Things, Part 2, The Households of God, Part 3, Divine Transgressions, Part 4. Yahweh and his portion. Just a couple of sections of his book. And part five, conquest and failure and so on. Go to Amazon.com. Right around 300 reviews. Check the reviews out. They'll tell you a lot. And uh, pretty scholarly research, but on a level, I like to say, even I can understand. And, uh, this is just a, a, a treat for me because uh, in reading Dr. Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, um, it, it touched me in, in, a, in a way that I, I guess I'm, I'm a linear thinker. I'm an investigator. I like I like to I like to have the facts and the source documents. Obviously, is what Dr. Heiser is referring to the composition of the Bible. But but one of the things that really instilled in me a warmth if you will, or, or reassurance, is the, the what, we're, what Dr. Heiser was talking about right before the break, and what we're talking about now is, you know, what, what, why we're here, because as we, as, we, as we approach our mortality, don't we often think, well, what is or what was our life about? Now, I, I know there are Christians out there who might say, well, that's just a, you know, dumb question. Or, 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 you know, a waste of time thinking about that. No, I don't think so. Because I, I like to look at things in the bigger picture, and I think Dr. Heiser does a good job in breaking this down, whereas even I can understand it. The linear thinker, the guy that uh, has to follow a, a trail of breadcrumbs at times. Dr. Heiser points it out, fill, completes the task in theunseenrealm.com. That's just one of his books. His latest book, 368 pages, came out September 1st of last year. Just a bestseller on Amazon. Check it out. But, Dr. Heiser, thanks for holding over. And mm-hmm. Go ahead and continue. I mean, this, um, uh, man, I, the, the bigger picture that you paint and the how you address things. And, and well, it's, just I, it's kind of interesting. You know, we just, the last podcast episode we did, um, we got a question, uh, you know, again, ironically or providentially enough about... Um, 
well, the, the, the illustration that the questioner used, it was a Q&A episode, uh, was about ritual abuse victims. And I, um, I have a nonprofit, and one of our projects is to, to get funding to people who are survivors uh, of ritual abuse so that they can travel to people I trust uh, who work you know, exclusively full time, you know, with, with such survivors. And, and, and the questioner asked, uh, the question was about methods and, and he, he wanted to know, well, you know, what, what if somebody's doing a particular method here to help a person, you know, who this is their, their situation and, and it doesn't work. And he used the phrase, you know, it, it seems that God just didn't help. And I used that occasion in that podcast episode to talk about, what, what is it we actually mean by God helping? And this takes us back to the whole concept of, of imaging uh, that I discuss at length in Unseen Realm, because we have this impression that, you know, when we pray for someone or we, you know, do something materially for someone or say a kind word or an appropriate word, that if it doesn't have the desired effect, then like God didn't show up as though God's help is just nothing more than a series of direct divine interventions. And I made the point, you know, this isn't the way humanity and human life on this earth was designed to be. It's actually contrary. And, and for your listeners who are unfamiliar with the whole concept of imaging, you know, I, I spend a good deal of time in the book talking about what the image of God doesn't mean. It, it's not a quality that humans have. It's not something put into humans. Uh, the image of God is, really refers to a status. And again, for the academic work on that, you know, you can read that in the book. And yeah, it's, it's based on a point of Hebrew grammar and all that fancy stuff. But the bottom line is, is we are God's representative on this planet. And to complete whatever task God has for us in providence to do, to be Him as it were, in whatever time and place that we find ourselves again by his providence. He has given us he's shared attributes with humans to get that done. One of those is freedom. God is the only perfectly free being, and he possesses the attribute exhaustively, but he shares it with us. Humans have free will, and so do divine beings. And I, I talk about in the book that, you know, this was, was sort of, I mean, from our perspective, it was sort of a risk, because God knows that as soon as he shares this attribute with people, he has made us a little like him in terms of the attributes he's given. But he also knows that none of us are him. We all lack his nature. And so that means we will abuse God's good gift. We will choose wrong. We will make mistakes or we will rebel. And so will, again, the members of the unseen realm. You know, in Job, it says that God doesn't trust his holy ones. He knows better. He knows about their track record, and he knows they aren't him, just like he knows we aren't him. So why is there evil in the world? Well, there's evil in the world because God decided to make us his imager and to equip us in a small measure with his attributes, one of which included freedom. So God doesn't God isn't behind the evildoer coaxing him along or nudging him along. He didn't make a plan that says, oh, I need this child to be raped so that this other thing on the other side of the planet works. Okay, God doesn't use or need evil 
and he just doesn't. He knows it's going to happen because of who we are. And you say, well, why, why would God do that? Well, he would do that because the only other alternative is to not have us at all. The only way you eliminate evil is to eliminate humanity and the lesser divine, the created divine beings and leave God all by himself. So with God, there is no plan B. There is only plan A. Plan A was I want a human family with me, working with me, that I can love, that can share the things that I, you know, who I am, the things that I've done, the things that I've made. I want that to happen. And I'm willing to make that happen. And I, I can't make them robots because they wouldn't be like me because I'm not a robot. I'm willing to have evil rear its head. I'm willing to have rebellion come along. I'm willing to have failure come along because the alternative is to never have them at all. Now, to me, that shows the love of God. And God helping, you know, to go back to the initial illustration, God helping, God helps all the time because what does he do? God uses his spirit he uses his imagers, whether they're divine beings or human beings, to interact and intersect with other imagers. That's us, people. So that what we do really matters. It actually matters. We just don't think of our lives as having this ripple effect. Every, every time we decide to obey an inner prompting, that's there because, you know, of, of something we learned about Scripture or about the nature of God or the Spirit influencing us. Every time we do and think and say the things we're supposed to do and avoid the things that we're not, and, and the reverse is true as well, those decisions ripple out through the lives of people in our circles and then the people in their circles and then the people in another layer through more circles and more and more and on and on and on. It's this cumulative ripple effect. You know, we, we just don't look at our lives this way. I, I like movies, you know, like, like it's a wonderful life. You know, if I'd have turned left instead of right, what would the outcome have been? What we really need to do is we really need to, to think about this is the way our lives are. God puts us in places, times and places, because he wants us to do or say or not do or say something because he's trying to use us to work with someone else. And he knows the ripple effect that will result. When we disobey, God's not going to give up. He's not going to blow us up. He's not, he's going to get someone else. Someone else will, will, will be put in that situation. God will steer the circumstances, use his influences, his spirit, whatever it is, whatever the means at God's disposal. He will bring someone else along again to reap the, reap the benefits of obedience the blessing of it, and to produce positive ripples instead of negative, negative ones. So wouldn't life be different if we woke up every day and thought that what I do today is going to ripple through the cosmos, <laughs> it's going to ripple through, ripple through the earth in ways I will never be able to detect, and I'm not supposed to be able to detect them, but I know that the, these will be the results of what I do and what I say. And it's up to God to engineer all of the circumstances. And God's end game is this thing we call the kingdom of God that has already 
been started, but is moving inexorably toward a consummation on this planet in a global Eden where we, as John says twice in Revelation 2 toward the end, Revelation 3 toward the end, that we will rule and reign with Christ okay, over the nations. Well, who's over the nations now? Okay, it's the fallen mm. gods of, of the cosmic geographical worldview. We, res- we replace them. We, in effect, become the, real, the, the, the reconstituted council of God. In other words, it all goes back to where it was supposed to be, in Eden, us with them, us with God, but now the situation is global. The Edenic mandate has been fulfilled. It's not an accident that the book of Revelation ends this way, that it has lots of Edenic imagery. That's deliberate. It's deliberate telegraphing. It's, it's weaving a matrix, you know, creating a network of ideas you know, that, that, that goes all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And that's really what we miss. I mean, you don't have to read Mike's book or ever, you know, you know, you can reject everything I say. That's fine. You'll still be able to understand the gospel. You'll get the basics of good theology, and, and that's a blessing. But what you won't get if you don't have the Israelite or the first century Jew in your head is you will not be able to see the tapestry. You will not be able to see the interconnections. You will not be able to understand them the way they were meant to be understood by the original writers. Again, this is the goal of the book, to, to help you along that path to be able to do that. That's one heck of a marketing uh, statement. Uh, you know, I'm sold, and I already read the book, but the way you describe it, it, it is accurate to me. It's this this wonderful tapestry that that is woven here um, by events, but also the picture you paint. Let, let's use book. some... Let's use some examples. Okay, let's just take the cosmic geography idea that Israel is Yahweh's turf, and he has assigned the other nations to the other gods. Again, this is an act of judgment. It's punishment. It's the Old Testament explanation for why the nations worship other gods. It's because God judged them, okay? And they went astray. They they disobeyed Yahweh. So you look at some, some passages. If this is your worldview, you run into a passage like, okay, David's running from Saul like he does most of the time. And he has to leave Judah and go into Philistine territory. And now he's lamenting, oh, how can I pray to the Most High? How can I pray to Yahweh? Well, look, David's not denying omnipresence. (laughs) But he has this sense that I need to be in God's territory to be in right relationship with him. I need to be in in Israel. Or we have the the whole episode of, of the Philistines capturing the Ark of the Covenant. Again, we, we know this story from Sunday school. It's funny. You know, they, they capture the ark. They take the ark into the temple of Dagon in one of their cities. And, you know, overnight, you know, what happens to Dagon? You know, he gets his head lopped off, his limbs, you know, so they return the morning and it's just a stump. Uh-huh, you know, and it is funny. But while we're laughing, we miss the line, you know, that the, about the Philistine priests. You know, they decide, boy, we need to get rid of this thing. But then it, the, the narrative actually says, to this day, the priests of Dagon refuse to walk over the threshold of Dagon. Why? Because that's where they found Dagon, and that territory is no longer under Dagon's dominion. Dagon was defeated on that spot. That turf belongs to Yahweh now, and they're not taking any chances. You know, you look at the, the incident with Naaman, the leper. Okay, he's a big, important guy, big soldier, captain, you know, Syria. And the little slave girl says, well, you got leprosy, well, you, why don't you just 
you know, you big dummy, why don't you just go down <laughs> to, to Israel and, and go ask the prophet, you know, go talk to Elisha and he'll take care of your leprosy. So he does, takes a bunch of men with him, goes down, the prophet won't even come out to talk to him. He says, yeah, I know what your problem is. Just go dip yourself in the Jordan seven times, you'll be okay. And Naaman gets ticked. It's like, well, we got better rivers than this little mud hole. You know, he starts going off, and, and his, his men basically convince him to go do what the prophet said. You know, if, if he said something spectacular, wouldn't you have done it? Well, I, I guess so. Well, well, just, you know, just try it. Just go do it. And he does it, and he's clean. And then he, he comes back to, to Elisha's hut, and he says, this time the prophet comes out, you know, to talk to him, and he says, now I know that Yahweh is the God of all gods. You know, I'm convinced. What more proof do I need? And then he asked the prophet, here's the part we miss. What does he, what does Naaman ask Elisha for permission to do? He says, would it be okay if I load as much dirt as I can on my mules and take it back to Syria with me? Cause I'm, you know, I'm an important guy and one of my jobs is I gotta take the king into the temple of Ramon, who's a deity he just denounced, by the way, by saying Yahweh was better. I gotta go in there and, you know, the king's kinda old, you know, and he'll bow down. I gotta kinda bow down with him. You know, we're not specifically told what he wants to do with the dirt. Is he gonna sprinkle some in Ramon's presence so that he's protected? <clears throat> is he gonna wear a little around the neck in a pouch? Is he gonna stuff his pockets full of dirt? We don't know, but what he wants is dirt. Why does he want dirt? Because of cosmic geography. He wants the presence of Yahweh with him. You know, these kinds of stories, again, bleed into the, into the New Testament. Jesus, you know, he goes to, you know, Matthew, you know, 16, the whole thou art Peter and upon this rock passage. Well, where does that happen? It happens at Caesarea Philippi, Mike. That's what the gospel writers say. Yeah, right. It, it does. That's true. What was that in the Old Testament? Well, that's the region of Bashan. And Bashan in Canaanite was known as the place of the serpent. Okay, and and in this place, that was where the Rephaim were, the giant clans, and and they're right there at the foot of Mount Hermon, which, according to Second Temple Jewish thinking, was where the Watchers, the sons of God, descended in Genesis six to to take their oath to corrupt humanity. And and hey, you know what else happened in Bashan? There were two places mentioned in Deuteronomy two and three that were considered by Canaanites, not biblical literature. This is Canaanite literature. They were considered to be the gates of hell, the, the gateways to the netherworld. Well, if you know all that, Jesus goes up there. He says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not be able to withstand it. Okay, Peter, you know, Peter isn't the rock. Okay, God isn't the rock. The rock is where they're standing. And since this was the gateway to the netherworld, who's the netherworld lord in Canaanite religion? It's Baal. Baal is called Baal Zebul. Does that sound familiar? In Ugaritic, Baal-zebul means Prince Baal. It becomes a title for Satan in the New Testament because Baal is Lord of the Dead, and that's what the serpent is. He's cast down, Lord of the Dead, the whole thing. And Jesus is, in effect, saying, look, this is where it begins, fellas. I'm going to build my church and upon, you know, right upon this rock. I'm going to turn Satan's house into his tomb. And the gates of hell will not be able to withstand it. Six days later, Matthew says, they went up into the mountain. Well, there's only one mountain there, folks, next to Caesarea Philippi. And that's Mount Hermon. What happens at Mount Hermon? The transfiguration. 
he goes to ground zero for the bad guys, okay? Caesarea Philippi, Bashan, okay, the, the, the gates of hell thing, and now Mount Hermon. Jesus goes to ground zero for the world of darkness and is transfigured. What he's doing, is he's, he's saying, here I am, fellas, here I am, do something about it. He's picking a fight. How do we know he's picking a fight? Because the narrative then changes to, after these things, Jesus began to instruct his disciples that he needed to go to Jerusalem and die. And they're freaked out. It's like, wait a minute, we just poked Satan in the eye over at Caesarea Philippi. We just poked the watchers in the eye here at Mount Hermon, and now you're talking about dying? Are you crazy? I mean, you know, they just react viscerally against it, but Jesus is like, this is the whole plan. This is the whole plan. And Paul tells us that, that the, the powers of darkness, the rulers of this world, didn't know the plan. They knew who Jesus was. You know, that's kind of obvious. They call him the Son of the Most High. You know, the demons address him that way. They know what the end game is. Oh, Jesus is here. The Messiah is here. Boy, you know, Yahweh's up to that build, rebuild, restart, kickstart the kingdom of God thing. But you know what? This is our turf. We're not going to let this happen. And so what's their solution? Let's kill him not knowing that that is exactly what the plan was. It's exactly what needs to happen. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, had the rulers of this world known, again, what the impact would have been, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. That the New Testament, well, both Testaments, are just full of this kind of stuff. How, how places and events and ideas and concepts and terms and titles, you know, place names, they are interconnected. Again, how does heaven meet earth? It, meet, it meets earth in a positive way and also a negative way. But we miss these things because we're living two, three, four thousand years after the fact. And nothing that I just described is, is incomprehensible to someone who wants to learn the Bible. None of this is incomprehensible. And so we, we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, yeah, people do get, get angry. And I, some of them get angry at me because, again, I, you know, they have this pet idea or this favorite argument for this point or that point, you know, that I might tread on. But, but a lot of them get angry because it's like, why? I'm 50 years old. I'm 70 years old. I'm 20 years old. I've been in church X number of years. Why is this the first time that I'm hearing this stuff? Again, I, I could do a whole lecture on, on the reasons why that is, but you know, ultimately it's really not that productive. Don't worry about it. Okay, go from this point forward. I had the same feeling. I had the same feeling 15 years ago when I'm just jumping into this stuff. And I, actually, I didn't jump into it. I was forced into it. You know, and, and I was in a hostile environment, University of Wisconsin. You know, I was doing Israelite religion and they throw everything at you. And if you have no framework for processing things, there are reason why, you know, I, there were people in, in, even in my department that I just wonder, you know, did they lose their faith or, or what? It, it, again, I, I, I was blessed, again, providentially to just kind of have a moment of insight, a moment, you know, where I thought, well, Jesus knew this passage. This isn't new. I'm not seeing anything that wasn't there yesterday. There must be a way that all of this fits together cohesively. How do I get there? 
and I didn't have any guidance. I went to, you know, evangelical sources. Most of them avoid Psalm 82 like the plague. They cheat. Oh, the gods here are just human. Nothing to see here, citizen. Move along. You know, all these dumb arguments that I knew were just easily overturnable and, and were really designed to deflect my attention away from what I was seeing. And it just it put me in a pickle. You know, I, I'm, I'm, but I, I, you know, I had to stick with it. And again, I, I reached a point where I thought, you know what? This is so cool. It, it's not, a, it's not threatening. It's cool. I'm seeing the Bible as it was meant to be seen for the first time. And I was, I was pushing 40. You know, and again, I had lots of teaching experience, you know, and, and lots of, you know, classes and credits and all this stuff. And so that, again, that, that just became, it became a mission. I mean, I, I guess kind of an obsession, that might be the right word. To be able to, to give this to the church. And again, I view the book. I mean, you've read the intro, so you know it. I view Unseen Realm as the starting point. I'm giving you the lay of the land. I'm telling you, here are the things that, that we need to see and think about. We can drill down in 50 places. It, it, it's just so layered. It's so, it's just wonderful. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, it is. And I, it, it, I have never been been so moved to think about scripture as a supernatural thing as I as I have been going through this. One of the um, advantages of modern technology is the ability to, you know, the the different computer programs that do tie in the concordances and ancient Hebrew meanings of words and ancient mm-hmm. Greek meanings of words is something that. You know, since the printing presses in the Bible, you, you haven't really had. You have commentaries, um, and then people would go buy concordances um, in, in recent history. But uh, it's you know free out there for everyone. And one thing that I've noticed when I one of the programs I use is uh, eSword, and you can download all kinds of. I'm sure you're familiar with it: maps, commentaries, mm-hmm. uh, dictionaries, and whatnot. And when you read the Bible through, and you go through each word. Uh, whether it's important or not, and look at the ancient Greek, ancient Hebrew meaning to the word, it does bring a whole new context to the Bible. It brings a whole new, um, as you said, layers, these different layers that you know you go through. And it does bring more confusion uh, also if you're used to reading it in English and only English and you know having what, that understanding. That, that's why Dr. Heiser's book, that's, why, that's what got me about Dr. Heiser's book, because he's... A, a, a linguist. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, he knows the meanings of the Hebrew words, and uh, I mean, I'm just throwing that in there because I know what you're saying, and that's what I struggle with too. Um, but I think that's uh, the, the. I like to tell people, you know, because look, again, I, I I can sit here, and I mean, I mean this with all my heart. I am unrepentant about my degrees, <laughs> I, <laughs> as well you, know, you should. I, I, you know, I, I I loved languages, still do. I mean, I, I still I sit there with my iPhone and look at you know go through hieroglyphic vocabulary. I mean, I'm, I'm a geek, okay? So I'm I'm unrepentant about that. But the difference between me and anybody hearing me at this moment is just time and the will of God. I mean, there are, there are those who who are. Doctor, we're, 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 at the, we're at the break. Um, when we come back, hopefully you can take some questions. We can finish that thought and take sure. some questions. Doctor Michael Heiser, theunseenrealm.com.
are so blessed to have with us Dr. Michael Heiser, his website, drmsh.com, his book, The Unseen Realm, his website, theunseenrealm.com for the book, um, you know, how Dr. Heiser approaches the Bible. The Bible isn't the result of a paranormal event. The right context for its interpretation isn't the Church of Fathers. No, 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 no. The Reformation, no, no. It's the original ancient context that produced it. That's kind of, well, that's not kind of. That is the way his book, The Unseen Realm, approaches it. And it's really a refreshing, eye-opening and you know something not that difficult to understand postgraduate level work that's that's given to us in, in a way that it's easily understood and it's life altering when you look and read the book um this is one of those books that you know I will have I'll be carrying with me a long time because you read something and you, you, you mull it over and you think about it and uh, then you go back to your Bible and you read what's in the Bible it's a great companion book for the Bible but uh, Dr. Michael Heiser has got a lot of peer review uh, very good reviews uh, all scholars, clergy, lay people who read this profound and accessible book will grow in their understanding of both the Old and New Testaments so this from um professors of Bible uh, I'm sorry, the professor of Bible or Biblical Studies, Westmont College, uh, Tremper Longman third. Interesting. Uh, interesting reviews, great reviews. Go to Amazon.com if you wish or theunseenrealm.com before we get back to Dr. Heiser and some audience questions as well. Folks, I want to direct your attention to prep, prep items at AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com. That's AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com. Long-term storable food. How's your pantry looking for that supply disruption? The hurricane, the tornado, the flooding perhaps, or the unthinkable. You saw what happened in the Northeast this past weekend. What if that was sustained? What if that was sustained for a period of time? What about food? How do you fix for food? Well, American Survival Wholesale is your answer. There you can get long-term storable food. When you run out of the store-bought items, you can count on, always rely on long-term storable food from AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com. They sell the Thrive brand. It's uh, they got a lot of great, a lot of great items there, including a Thrive Passion Fruit Yogurt Bites. You can eat those right out of the can. And, of course, vegetables, meats, all of your staples. That's the Thrive brand at AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com. Take advantage of their specials and their hard-to-get items, which are in stock now. For how long, we don't know. Getting back to our guest, Dr. Michael S. Heiser, drmsh.com is his website, home base there. He's got uh, uh, links to his podcast and, uh, and, of course, his book, uh, books, plural, and he has got the Naked Bible podcast as well. And Eric, the tech, just pulled the trigger, ordered the book. So you'll be happy to know. And I want to say, I want to say thank you, too, uh, to J.K., who also just ordered the book, and also a couple of other people checking in from Europe um, saying, yes, yes, thank you for having this guest on. So worldwide broadcast here, and uh, you're touching a lot of people tonight, Dr. Heiser. Thank you so much for for being with us. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. You know, um, we can go to a lot of different places, we, certainly. We, we could right now. But uh, 
let me, if I can sneak in a question here. Uh, let me just grab this question here. Okay. Uh, let me see here. But you'll have to excuse my, my, uh, you'll have to excuse, okay, here we go. This is from Vivian who writes this. How can there be rebellion, greed, and vanity in heaven? If this is what you were implying, by the way, or, or suggesting. Uh, she writes that my belief was that heaven was perfect and had nothing to do with that earthly realm of fleshy feelings. How does an entity, as Lucifer, for example, that was created by God, even have the spirit of rebellion while being in the home of God? Where does this come from? And she writes, I just can't wrap my head around that. And I think you, you think, Dr. Heiser, you could probably help her wrap her head around that. Yeah, you can have rebellion wherever you have beings that are not God. In other words, why would we assume that any created being, whether it's a divine being or, of course, a human being, why would we assume that those beings who can make decisions because they're created as God's imager with his shared attributes, why would we assume that they would exercise those abilities perfectly and always for the right reasons when they are not the God of Israel. They are by definition less than him. They do not have his nature. There is only one perfect being and that is God, the God of the Bible. So, you know, we, we tend to look at, you know, divine beings, the spiritual world, because, you know, we, we sort of kind of intuit, well, it's better than this one. So those beings over there must be better than, than we are. Well, depends on what you're talking about. I mean, Job does say in two places that God does not trust his holy ones. Now, rebellion, divine rebels, uh, where that occurs, they don't work for God anymore. Okay, there's no sense that God uses rebels okay, in his plans, that he, you know, has a right relationship with them. They are estranged like human rebels are estranged. Of course, in the human's case, because of the incarnation, the work of Christ, you know, we can be redeemed. But again, we're still not perfect beings. You know, we're not told that divine rebels get the same privilege. You know, that they're subject, again, to redemption under the atonement. You know, scripture is silent on that and I think implies uh, the opposite negatively. So why do we have it? because there's only one God that no one else nothing else has his perfect nature and so acting in self-interest against the authority of the highest authority can and did happen interesting it makes perfect sense too and, and Vivian I, I, hopefully that answers your question I, I know that I mean it makes sense to me in the heavenly abode, I mean, it doesn't yeah, we, it doesn't preclude. Yeah, we, the, we we just we don't have multiple perfect beings. I mean, I mean, perfection in its exhaustive, ultimate sense. That is only the God of Israel, and of course, the God of Israel, you know, appears as a man in the Old Testament. We have the incarnation, which goes more, you know, that that that's beyond mere embodiment. We have the incarnation of this God in Jesus Christ. And, you know, 
again, we have the spirit, so on and so forth, but that triunity, and again, in the unseen realm I talk about, where, for instance, where Trinitarian thought really comes from, uh, there are several chapters on God as man in the Old Testament and how that works, and then how that's repurposed <clears throat> in the New Testament. But if once you get outside the Trinity, you're not dealing with perfect beings anymore, even though they, to us, are exalted beings. They're more powerful, they're more intelligent, they have closer proximity to God in the spiritual world. They're still not him. He's the only perfect one. And based on free will, and there are a couple of questions on this right now, um, rather than take them individually, I'll just kind of lump them together. The the horrific things that we're seeing right now take place. The mm-hmm. uh, you know with with the, with the terrorist attacks, the beheadings, specifically taking uh, putting Christians on the chopping block here worldwide. That there is evil and there is good. I mean, there could be no denying that. And you, you by the way, you map this out in a kind of an understandable fashion in your book, The Unseen Realm. But you want to comment on what we're seeing today and how that is really leading us into uh, the, I think, I want to be clear on how you, the, the kingdom not yet, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think, again, you know, what you get in the kingdom when it's offered, in the kingdom, you know, when it when it comes at the first coming, which of course is not what it's going to be at the second coming. I think Jesus was very clear, and so were the rest of the New Testament writers, that followers of Christ will be specially targeted for persecution. And you know, of course, Jesus says, "Well, don't be surprised. The world's going to hate you because it hated me." Uh, this is no different than the way he was treated, the way the apostles were treated, so on and so forth. So I, I tend to think that the acceleration, at least again to us, and I think it's more than just being aware of persecution in more places because of the Internet. I, I do think there is an actual acceleration here going on. The acceleration of this, again, is something that I think biblical prophecy does talk about, that it goes hand in hand with you know, history, as it were, moving again toward this particular, you know, culmination of this thing we, we know and we call the earthly kingdom of God, you know, with the return of Christ and so on and so forth. So I, I would be very comfortable with saying, yeah, there's something to that. I, I do believe there's something to that. Uh, my own view of eschatology, though, is that it was deliberately cryptic the first time around so that, you know, the powers of darkness would not be able to comprehend the full plan with precision. So my view is that that's the way it's going to work the second time around. Prophecy is deliberately cryptic. You know, uh, I, for thank you for saying special that. special reasons. You know, I, 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 no, I just want to thank you for saying that because um, I wasn't sure if it was in one of your... I know you, you touched it in the periphery of your book, uh, but I wasn't sure if you were talking about that in one of your lectures. The, the, the cryptic nature of prophecy... Then and now, I suppose, before and after, or however you want to frame that, really, that was a hook for me. So, this is the cryptic nature. Just to be clear, is to confound the enemy, right? Not God's people, but the enemy. I mean, 
Yeah. I mean, we, okay. you know, God's, God's people need to trust him that A, he is in control, B, that he actually has an intelligent plan, and C, that he's working the plan. You know, and, and Jesus saying more or less, that's sufficient. I mean, you don't need to know the day or hour, no one does, blah, blah, blah. You know, we know all these passages. So, you know, we can look at scripture, and we can see patterns. A lot of prophecy is actually about pattern recognition. It's not a one-to-one literalism. That isn't the way it worked the first time. There's lots of literalism going on, but there are things that transcend literalism as well. You know, pattern recognition is a big deal. And so we can look at Scripture, and we can try to look for patterns both in it and then external to it as well. But, you know, the Lord has already told us, look, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to sort of penetrate the veil here fully. And, and again, really it's by design because if the enemy could just sort of pick the thing up, okay, okay, okay we got this going to happen right here, check that box, you know, or okay, how are we going to thwart that? You know, since, since God has been so dumb to spell everything out he's going to do, well, now we kind of know how to react. Okay, that isn't the case. Okay, there is an enemy in view, and the enemy doesn't deserve this information, and they're not getting it. they're just not going to get it God doesn't play that way he doesn't show the whole hand Um, but I I don't don't know why to me this this is a pretty obvious thing because you know we look at the disciples I mean think about at the end of the book of Luke okay there they are the risen Christ is in the room with them and the text says he had to open their minds so that they could understand it's like Look, it, it's not that they're doofuses. Okay, there's no Greek word for doofus in the passage, okay? It's not that they're morons. It's that prophecy was written and constructed in such a way that it could not be understood without hindsight and without the Spirit of God, and of course in that setting, the, the risen Christ right there, explaining the connections, explaining how it worked, and then they could see from hindsight, oh, that is how that was meant to come together. That's what really was meant by this phrase. They needed hindsight. And all I'm saying is, if it worked that way the first time, and it worked pretty well, actually, I think it's going to work that way the second time around. And that's why, again, we're, we're not told everything in just painful, unblinking, you know, unmistakable, you know, precision. I think that's deliberate. One last question here, uh, Dr. Heiser. And, um, because of the title of your book, The Unseen Realm, and of course, uh, your appearance on Coast to Coast AM, we, we've got a number of people who, who heard you on Coast to Coast AM. Um, the coming deception is often discussed among among Christians, and we we talk about it as well. The coming deception. How, you know, what is going to happen? Um, some alien life force. Uh, you know, are are they going to be um, declared? Uh, you know, the gods. The the deception, the delusion. How do you see the end game playing out here, based on your research, your studies? This immense investigative work product that uh, is titled "The Unseen Realm." Uh, how do you see the, the end game playing out here? Uh, I don't mean to disparage it by saying end game. I, how do you see this unfolding here as we get closer to the end of days? 
Yeah, this is the kind of thing I love to play with in my fiction. Uh, I have two novels. The first one is The Facade, and the second one is The Portent. Um, the second one is a sequel to the first one. And a lot of it revolves, you know, right, well, let me, let me just put it this way. There, What you just asked are themes. They're threads that run through both books and, and a, you know, a whole lot of other threads, too. I, I tend to, to be influenced by the scriptural notion that whatever the deception is will be so powerful that it will um, cause an apostasy. Okay, and, and you can't really apostatize if you're an unbeliever because you, know, you can't really apostatize from error. You have to apostatize from truth. Um, so I, I think that that's something that needs to be considered. Uh, the, the whole statement about that it's so powerful that if it were allowed to persist, you know, even the elect, you know, would be consumed by it, so on and so forth. Now, the reason I bring that up is because I think a lot of the way this stuff gets talked about is too cartoonish, too obvious to have much deceptive power. For instance, would you really be deceived if you woke up tomorrow and you turned on the news and there was like a big you know, army of Nephilim that had taken over Washington, D.C. Would you look at that and think, yeah, good, I, I need to I need to get on that bandwagon. No, it, it's so obvious. It's so painfully obvious. You know, the, you know, people are not going to find deceptive power in something like that. But nevertheless, I think those ideas are really, really important. And here's how I frame things. I think that I don't know if it's going to be equatable with the deception, but I think there, these will be, this will be component parts. Things like transhumanism and, again, the whole extraterrestrial question are really, in my view, and, and I'm not alone here, they're really about gaining control of theological language. They're about redefining what theism means, what God means, who Jesus was, who we are as human beings. You control the theological vocabulary and you will control the belief system that emerges from that vocabulary. If you redefine the definitions to these terms, people will be led into believing that they are embracing these ideas just like before when they are not. And so I pay attention to what the media does, mass media. I'm talking about superheroes and comics and, you know, major science fiction films and stuff like this. I think all of that is really important because it is about planting ideas into the mind of the masses and, con and, and along with controlling the vocabulary, it can be very powerful. You know, let me give you an example. Okay, Peter Thiel, you know, who founded PayPal, which means he has lots of money. His parents were missionaries. He still professes to be a Christian. He's, he's actually very, you know, vocal about it. Some would even say militant about it. Although, you know, he, he is living in a homosexual lifestyle. But he, again, talks about his faith a lot. He's also one of the, the foremost promoters of transhumanism. And he, his argument for it is theological. Well, isn't this what we're supposed to do? Aren't we supposed to mimic the Creator? Isn't our destiny, according to the New Testament, to become divine, to be glorified? 
aren't we supposed to be like God? I mean, why does why is the New Testament run around talking about this stuff? You know, why shouldn't it be our 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 on our on our plate to restore Eden, to to end disease, to extend life? You know, all this stuff again that transhumanism, synthetic biology, nanotechnology, all these things. This is this is a divine mission, and we are here in God's place to accomplish this. Well, when you begin to cast things in those terms, and then of course you market it by the benefits, it won't change people's minds in a week or a month or a year, but give it a couple decades, and you will redefine all these theological ideas. So I'm interested in what will move the herd. If I was the grand master of evil here, if I'm the evil, you know, the puppet master here, I want to know where do I want the game to end? Where do I want it to go? And then the question becomes, how do I get there? How do I move the herd to think this thought? Because when they think this thought, they'll be ready for the next thought. And then the next thought, and then the next thought. It's imperceptible. It's an imperceptible apostasy. I think is far more powerful than, again, something that is just so overt and whatnot. Now, sure, part of that might be an announcement by NASA. Hey, you know, you know, we found this a couple years ago, or we found it yesterday. I mean, it'd have to be a couple years ago because we've had, we've studied it. It's been through peer review. We've had everybody in, under the sun look at it, and we think we can finally conclude that, yeah, there, there really was at one time life on Mars, or or there is now. That's all that's needed to, again, put the wheels in motion to move the herd. Because then the, the discussion of are we alone gets amped up. Well, we probably aren't because life was there before and it was here. And, and you know, it goes through the same life processes and all this stuff. Again, the idea isn't we're going to capture the minds of the masses overnight. This is this is about long-term shifts in thinking. So I think all of these ideas are really, really important, you know, to to track on, to pay attention to, and and what our entertainment does is it just package these ideas in such a way that we long for human enhancement. We see the benefits mm. of these wow. things. And we can see that, well, yeah, I mean, maybe this is our, our, our destiny, and who knows, that we might need to do this to prevent this bad thing over here from happening. Uh, again, it's, it's, mass media is just marketing. That, that's all it is. It's propelling ideas in certain forms so that more people not only find them palatable, but they, they unconsciously find them palatable because they're entertaining. So I pay a lot of attention to these sorts of things, and, again, if I were, again, the evil mastermind, I wouldn't, like, just stick it in somebody's face. I would ask the question, what do I need you to think? What do I need you to embrace? How do I need you to talk about this thing? Because then I will drop the next carrot in front of you, and I will move you along to where I want you to go. You know, so, it's been yeah. done. It's been done a thousand times in other areas of life. Why not this? Elegantly sinister, or simplest, sim uh, simple, but sinister. And it's why I enjoy. 
I enjoy, you know, fiction. There's there's this wonderful scene. At least I think it's wonderful. I mean, you know, lots of people who who've read my novels enjoyed it, and and it's a memorable one. Where in the second book, the the villain um, confronts the main character again, who's who's basically me because I had to know somebody in my novels. I burned the first year of my dissertation writing a novel because I didn't want to write my dissertation. I was kind of burned out. <laughs> but there's there's this scene where the again the evil mastermind sits down at a meal with the main character and they both know what what's going on and you know the the evil guy says i'm going to tell you exactly what we're up to and what's going to happen and the only reason i'm telling you and of course keeping you alive is because i want it to wound you i want it to hurt because i want you to know what is really going on when it starts happening and then to be struck with the thought that there is nothing you can do about it. You're my entertainment. Wow. Huh. You know, and, and so I enjoy fiction because, again, I, I get to process these things in such a way and play with ideas and piggyback theology onto fiction and, and hopefully, again, draw people who wouldn't otherwise be drawn into biblical theology. Uh, Get them at the table and and have provide an entryway for for them to participate in the discussion. Wow! And those books can be uh, uh, purchased. Where, yeah, they're, uh, yeah, they're on they're on Amazon. The, the okay. first one is called the Facade. If you go to my website drmsh.com, they're on a little slider there, or you can go up to Mike's books and then click on Fiction. You'll find both of them. Um, I'm I'm hoping to jump into the third one in in 2017, but. I like trying to use fiction for that reason, you know, to, to piggyback theology onto it and provide an entertaining read, but also to provide people, you know, in, in all walks of life, atheists, pagans, whatever, you know, I, I don't care who they are, but I'd like them to, to participate in the discussion where they can learn some things and maybe process the Bible in a, in a better way than perhaps, you know, they've been taught to process it. And maybe at the end of the day, yeah, bring them to the... Bring them to yep, the Lord. Exa- exactly. Yeah. And I, I, I've gotten emails like that. You know, this helped recover my faith and so on and so forth. And, and again, I, you know, I'm not responsible for that process. God is. But, but again, can, can I be a little tool or a little cog in this thing? Again, because God is also working imperceptibly on the other side. Again, this whole thing about God didn't help me. Or in other words, you didn't see a lightning bolt. Maybe you're not processing what it means for God to help in quite the correct way. Amen. And how many how many times have we heard that? You know, where's God? Where's God? God didn't help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Doctor Heiser, thank you so very much for enriching us for your gift of time tonight. Glad um, to have you back. Oh man, if you yeah, if you if you're up well, to I, coming back sometime, I would I would certainly make time to come back. I mean, I'm I'm grateful that you invited me. Um, always, you know, always willing to do it, especially, you know, when I know you guys are really interested in the content, and that that helps me too. Oh yeah, yeah. And folks, uh, do yourself a favor. The Unseen Realm, the book, uh, theunseenrealm.com. It's a it's a marvelous book, and and it did. It, the effect on me was to reaffirm my beliefs and to really get me looking at the Bible a little differently. Thank you for that, Doctor Heiser. Thank you're you so welcome. Much. Thank you. God bless Have you. Have a good night. You, you too. Wow. 
That was Dr. Michael Heiser. TheUnseenRealm.com, D-R-M-S-H.com, stands for Dr. Michael S. Heiser. You know what, folks? There's a lot there, too, that we yes. didn't discuss from, oh. uh, you know, the alien uh, beings to Planet X, and he talks about all this. You can find the resources on his website, drmsh.com. I want to say thank you to all who have listened tonight, folks. Know that we are monitoring the situation here domestically and abroad. Uh, keep your eyes on our website, hagmanreport.com. That's hagmanreport.com. Also, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Folks, saddle for battle. It's coming. <laughs>